XCOM, you're talking about fifty hour campaign, yeah, weeks or something? of play, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so for me, they're only for me XCOM campaigns are only about six hours long because that's when my sniper dies usually, and then, <laughs> and then you're you like, just oh, well. have to roll it all down. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to game developer Adam Saltzman, who co-founded the indie publisher Finji, and is best known for his work on Gravity Hook, Cannibalt, Hundreds, Capsule, and Overland. Got sent to you know, a New York City hotel once on a game game dev thing, and I got, you know, looked at the menu, and I was like, a $20 hamburger, and I was like, yeah, all right, I, you know, it's not too crazy. Oh, wait. 20 bucks at an airport, too. Yeah. Oh, wait. This is the dog menu. Oh. <laughs> it was a $20 that, dog hamburger. That's why for it's your so dog. cheap. Like, right below it was kibble, and I was like, kibble? <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> What's the deal with the kibble? <laughs> cool. All right, so, cannibal. Um, yeah. So you were kind of unsatisfied because your projects were spanning out of control. Um, yeah, they were all over scope, and they just weren't cool mm, yeah. in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so you specifically began Cannibal with the idea that you were going to make a game in like a week or something? Yeah, it was actually for... They had um, the... Uh, Kyle Gray and Kyle Gabler had kind of rebooted the Experimental Game Project, yep. which is was their thing they did at CMU where they did little mini game jam-like things, maybe right. short-form flash games, and they had decided to reboot it as kind of a, a public activity. Okay. So uh, they had um, a website, and every month they would post a new theme, and then uh, at the end of the month, um, you were allowed to take the whole month to work on it as long as you didn't spend a total more than a total of seven days on the uh, thing or whatever mm-hmm. on the on the game so you could work on it three weekends or whatever yeah. and then everybody would post their stuff at the end of the month and uh, I really wanted to participate because the original EGP had been so influential on uh-huh. me it was like oh whoa short form games experimental games flash this is so cool I would love to participate and I had this sort of like weird fake uh, reputation because I accidentally done the art on this boggle clone that had sold really well on the iphone and i was in the indie games community there was some kind of like fake uh rep or something that i had where i had i suddenly had access to a lot of things but Uh it wasn't it was not there was no direct correlation between like the financial success we had had and my work as a game designer or anything like that Uh so i would like i can remember having uh, like the way I found out that I had worked on a Boggle clone is Jason Rohrer told me that it was a Boggle yeah, clone. I was on a train <laughs> with him in Canada for whatever reason, uh, and uh, how long after this was it? A couple, mu- couple months. Couple so months this this was I think in like November uh, of 2008 maybe, and it had shipped in like August. Um, and so for three or four months, I'd just been like, man, I'm like. What a cool original word game we had worked on, and I was on the train with Jason, and we were talking about things. He was doing some of his like coolest, um, uh, coolest work around, or some of his. Uh, he was, you know, uh, 
very high profile designer at the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, had he done uh, passage yet? I think so. Right, okay. I think so. Uh, and he was sitting near us and I was talking to my friend and he just comes over in a very Jason style and just goes like, Hey, so, uh, what was the idea behind, um, this like boggle clone? You made like a bunch of money from a boggle clone. That's pretty weird. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, and then he's like, you know, we like looked up. Uh, He's like, he's like, no, it's just, yeah, it's just like, uh, you made a boggle clone. I'm like, it's not... It's not, I, that's a weird way to spend your time. Like, what are you, what are you doing with all that boggle clone money? Uh, it's all and, that boggle clone. Uh, so, like, I had access to people they didn't have access to before, but I also really hadn't, like, designed much right. aside from this one, like, uh, Flash game that some people had played a year ago or whatever. Uh, but the EGP had kind of restarted, and I wanted to get into it and, like, practice doing design stuff, and it matched my contracting schedule or whatever uh i don't know if we i don't know if i was getting back into contracting it actually it might have been floating on boggle clone money still um but the uh theme when i when i like sort of hopped in and was making games with them it was like kyle gray and kyle gabler and petri perro maybe and a few other designers uh uh, to kind of like get things started, and they were like, "Okay, so the theme for this month is minimalism or whatever." Um, I think it was just minimalism uh, and make a game about minimalism, whatever that, whatever you think that means. Uh, and um, and yeah, there was I think there was like Thrustburst and Gravity Hook and Tower Blocks, and so the idea of like doing a one-button game was like very, mm-hmm. um, very forefront and. Um, this is the first time I was... I'd recently, very recently, become aware of Super Mario speedruns. Okay. I didn't know about speedruns in other games really yet. Um, uh-huh. But I'd been watching Super Mario Brothers races, uh-huh. where they have a theater full of people, and like two projections of the game, and two people would race side by side and try to... Um, you know, they were trying to like break four minutes or something like that. And they were like these really exciting races to watch because everybody takes the same path through Mario one. And they would, you could see like, Oh, that guy got in the pipe two frames before that guy. Uh, and I guess that's probably not exciting to normal people, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was having like a lot of fun watching sure, these yeah. things. And, but uh, I was noticing a thing about the Mario movement. I thought was really cool, which is like in these races, you just never, you never let go of the run button. Yeah. Uh, and you never let go of the right arrow. Yeah. And you basically just like tap jump at just the right huh. time. That's interesting. So like you like you know run through here and and you jump on these blocks and hit jump again. And then you land on the pipe and you hit jump again and that yeah. gets you just the right distance or whatever. Um, huh. And, that's totally wow. Yeah, that's kind of bold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just <laughs> I was like I was like the the Super Mario speedruns are basically one button games. Yeah, because they've taken away the control. Yeah, essentially. Otherwise, you wouldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, you're not you're not going left very much because yeah. it costs frames. Um, and. Uh, so I was watching that and thinking that was kind of cool. And those other games that I had in my head, I was thinking a little bit about Tony Hawk, which sometimes is kind of one buttony feeling. Like, yeah, you're steering a little bit, but like the real juice is to like charge up your jump and fly up in the air and um, land on things at the right time or whatever. It's uh, so like the first Cannibal controls were actually just straight pro skater controls. Um, and I was thinking about... Um, and it was going to be at like a weekend game jam at the end of the month uh, where 
the guy who made the prototype that Gravity Hook is based on was going to be at the game jam. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, if I was going to be there, I should, I'll try to make something really cool. And he'll think, I'm cool. <laughs> By proximity, because <laughs> I'm sitting there making the guy who made the cool boggle clothes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, and like little pieces. So there was like, there was a... Uh, the first prototype was really just like a few hours basically. And it was, um, using some tiles from a different game and just generating, um, boxes that would come along and like really, really quickly figuring out like, um, the limits of what I was trying to build. So the, the initial idea was like, Oh, it wanted to feel like those Mario speedruns. Mm-hmm. you know, just feel like, cause the Mario speedruns are, I was finding them exhilarating because they're like always about to f up, right? Always, like yeah. it's they're they're just like landing on the very edge of platforms and barely touching the ground, and off they go again. And so, like a lot of the initial ideas for Cannibal were very um, Mirror's Edge inspired. Mir- like first Mirror's Edge game had just had the demo. I think the game itself had already come out, mm-hmm. and I had played it and was like upset. Because I did not like it. I'd played the demo a bunch and had a very specific idea in mind uh-huh. of what that game would look like, and then it was not what I was playing. What didn't you like about it? I it was full of things that break your flow, kind okay. of. Right. Um, and I I don't think it's anything against the designers. I think that game. I think it's well. I don't know what happened. It's it, it could be it shipped a year too early. It could be that it's just. Um, they were wanting to achieve different things or that the, I was playing the game. Like some AAA games are actually a lot more fun if you play them like an arcade game. You just play the same level over and over. Yeah, that's um, pretty rare. I mean, that's the thing. Like you you make so much content for those games. Like to have a game where you just are in flow mode, I mean, you just have to be throwing money out the window to like yeah, make exactly. that much content so, to make that work if you're like you're building it from scratch, right? Yeah, but then, and there were, you know, there's like... Um, uh, I don't know, there were like Super Mario games before that where you frequently felt like you had cool flow and you're moving around the world in a cool way. Uh These Tony Hawk games and whatever. And I was really, I felt like really frustrated when I was playing Mirror's Edge because like the the gap between what I thought I should be doing in the game and and what was actually happening was so wide. And uh, so part of what I wanted to put in Cannibal is it was going to be like a very parkour thing. And there was Uh old like old text document idea about um uh that terrible escape from LA mm-hmm. like the Kurt Russell John Carpenter movie um and there's this, there's a great scene well great whatever there there's a ah scene where he like surfs out of LA there's like a huge flood and he's mm-hmm. like on this thing and i always thought that would be a cool like procedural platformer that would be your time pressure is you'd be climbing through the procedurally generated buildings and there would be like water coming behind you but things could float on it so if the water broke through a wood door the wood door might be floating and you could jump on it and ride it up to things or whatever and that all sounded like really hard yeah that sounds really hard to do uh (laughs) it sounded cool uh but so like that idea was floating around and there was all these other little bits and pieces and so um the very very first uh, the first cannibal thing was just these boxes and you just jump on the top of the boxes, but really quickly figuring out like, Oh, this is way the most fun. If there's no details 
uh, in this game at all, basically. It's just boxes, and you just go really, really fast. Mm-hmm. You go as fast were, as I can make the And so you were jumping go. from box to box at this point? Yeah. very okay. first, The very, very first cannonball is just... So you um, must have been tapping a lot at that point. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was even like it was... Uh, I had mobile loosely in mind. Like, cannonball was made semi-commercially. Like, one of okay. the very, very first... Like, that was the first thing that I designed that I thought, oh, like, you could sell this on an iPhone, right. too, if this works. Because mm-hmm. it's a one-button thing, because it's got that tower blocks thing. Right. Um, and But you made it as a Flash game. First, yeah, right? it was a Flash game web browser thing. Yeah. So it was just like... Uh, I think tapping the space bar maybe right. and just like hopping and trying like, Oh, if you make the buildings different widths, that's kind of interesting. And right. but initially um, it was just boxes. Yeah. Just like, like big was... green. They didn't look like buildings. Right. It was just like a black screen and there was these big green rectangles. Okay. You were when you say box, box, I'm literally thinking of like a square. Oh but no. You just mean like, a, yeah, big green rectangle. A that, it wasn't even clear that it was going to be a, a building or a rooftop right. or anything. It's a yet. Platform. Yeah. It's, right. There's okay. platforms near your little white box yep. and, before I think even before anything else went in, um, I put in like the glass windows that you jump through. Okay. Because it was I don't. There wasn't any good. It was just like that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping through stuff and it explodes is awesome, and you're going really fast, and that'll feel cool. Um, uh, just like in any any racing game, yep. doing anything right, uh, and. Uh, and that was the first... That was also where it was like, oh, this is actually a little... This isn't a racing game, but there are, like, little racing game pieces from racing games that I like a lot, like old uh, um, original Wipeout mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Games where you felt like you were going really fast. Mm-hmm. And what are th- what are tricks that you do to make it... Make you feel like you're going really fast and, oh, actually, you don't have access to a lot of those because this is a 2D game. Right. Uh, but there's some cool tricks we can do or whatever. Um but then, yeah, everything was just, um, you know, closest solution to hand. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, hopping on these boxes is actually pretty fun. Um, uh, the player size and the box length was all gameplay driven. And then it was just like, I, I guess they're main tops of buildings. Yep. Like the like a chase scene from the Matrix or something. And Was that your first concept? Like a fiction for it, basically. Basically, yeah. it was just right on the. There was the gameplay thing, and I like just I drew one picture, and it was like a bunch of building rooftops, and it was originally it was like six shades of gray because it was just a mock up, mm-hmm. and then ran out of time, so the game <laughs> is in six shades of gray, uh, and uh, that was about it. And then it was sort of like uh, you're jumping on rooftops and what else is going on or whatever. Like mm-hmm. why, why are you running across the things and um, what's going on in the background or whatever. And there have been, there was also like, there was another um, a thing in indie games at the time. So it was like um, uh, on like judging IGF submissions and stuff like that. And a thing that a lot of student games are doing and a lot of uh, new indie games are doing is they would um, be very abstract and have like a, some kind of little core mechanic or whatever, but then they would just be on these big blank canvases and there'd be nothing going on in the background. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was always like, that always felt like a little bit like a waste or something. And, uh, cannibal is mostly blank space. There was these Mm -hmm. little rooftops you were on, but, um, then behind that, there was just little cityscapes and silhouettes and whatever. So, um, 
just like just stuck aliens in there because that was it was like it was just like everything was the first thing out of the drawer right for all the things like what colors should it be i don't know gray because that's easy to set the values on right and uh those sort of look like rooftops now the rooftops did uh, you think you'd go back later and do it in color um I didn't think I'd ever go back and do it in color, but it seemed like it would need some refinement and that it would need some kind of ending and so on. And um, uh, the only thing that wasn't like first thing we grabbed out of the drawer was talking to uh, the game jam was at the old Flashbang Studios. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and Steve Swink was there and we were getting breakfast (laughs) and we were talking a lot about, um, because it was... It had the same problem that Gravity Hook had, basic or problem of if you play the game for two minutes and it keeps getting more and more challenging, it keeps going faster and faster. Eventually, it's too fast and too challenging, and you are forced. You just are forced out. Yeah, you can't make the jump in time, and it just like everybody's going to stop playing at the same point. And we already did that in that other Flash game right. a year before that, and mm-hmm. like. It's been a year. I got to do something cooler than that, and so maybe it's going to have an ending. But I don't know what to do for the ending. And uh, Steve suggested we were talking about um, a game called Captain Forever by Farbs, yep. uh, which was like a little space shooter thing. And um, you have a little ship, and you would shoot enemy ships. And then it was the first thing like this that I'd ever seen, where you could you would shoot an enemy ship, and the pieces would fall off it, and you'd fly over. And like magnet their pieces onto your ship, uh-huh. so you'd shoot up an enemy ship, and then its guns and jets would fall off, and you could fly over and grab all their guns and jets and just like Lego them onto your ship and fly off and fight a bigger ship, and that's how it kind of stacked up. But um, that was a really cool mechanic. But one of the like to me the really beautiful thing in Captain Forever was that it had a lot of um, user input about how hard you wanted it to get and how fast that happened. So it didn't just say, like, here comes a ship, fight it, here comes a ship, fight it. It was a big 2D map, and in each corner uh, might be a different difficulty of ship. So you'd be flying toward this ship, and it would say, like, warning, this is a level 17 ship, and you're, like, level 3. Right. Uh, And then you could just turn around and fly away. You didn't have to go fight it. You could go over here and it would say, here's a little level 4 ship. Maybe you can handle that. Or here's a level seven, which is like on the upper end of what you can handle, but maybe you're a, a more experienced pilot or whatever. And so you could just kind of pick where you wanted to go next. And I thought that was really um, thoughtful and mature and like a cool way of handling difficulty and progression and stuff like that is give people three or four choices. And if they don't, like the... Uh, comparing it to Thrustburst where you would like start up the game and it would just be like, you better play perfectly right away or you're restarting. Right. Uh, and this was like softball for an hour. If you want practice, get comfortable. Um, yeah. and we thought that was really cool and that that was missing from Cannonball because Cannonball was very Thrustburst, very gravity hook. Like you got intense very quickly. Yeah. It gets intense really quickly. And then it just like everything drops off at the same point And, uh, uh, so Steve's idea was, well, okay, what if you did, um, you did a thing where, uh, you could slow yourself down sometimes, right. uh, and kind of reset things and then let it build back up again. Uh, and it was like, well, I, I can't do that cause the, it generates all the buildings and like they keep getting farther and farther apart. 
and I was like, oh, well, we could just change we could change the level generator to be only like always one building ahead and adjusting itself based on your speed, your speed not right. on how long you've been running or the distance or anything. It would just check how fast are you going and it would try to make fun jumps for you. And you can, and we didn't put in brakes. We connected it to the jumping. We're like, oh, we'll put in these crates. You hit the crates, you stumble. That slows you down. If you hit too many crates, you'll go too slow and not be able to make the next jump. Right. But if you hit one crate, it'll dial it down for yourself. So you can choose... Every once in a while, you can choose to not jump instead of jumping over everything. And that can dial it back down to a place where you're more comfortable playing or you're having more fun playing. Right. Uh, and it felt like it felt really wild and subversive. Right. It felt like we were like, it was like, you can't do this. Like it's a, it's a arcade game. It always gets harder. Right, you right. can't let people choose to make it easier. What if, if we do that? Are people going to hate it? Like, will people be like... How long? So how long can someone play Cannibal? Uh, till floating point errors happen, which like, would take days. Yeah, but I mean, uh, how long? I mean, okay. Are there? It's funny. It's kind of like the opposite of speedrunners. Like, are there people who will try to play for like? Uh, there were some. There were there were some or? ambitious distance records. Okay. There were distance records that were above the threshold of what I thought like what humans would, would tolerate. To? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, and I mean, I'm just ten, ten, tens of thousands of meters, which for means sure. how many minutes of play? Uh, I mean, it could be 20, 30 minutes or something, possibly. Yeah. Um, wow. like definitely longer than I, you know, thought that people would do. But like, and that's also longer we, than you tested. So yeah, but it was also <laughs> when we realized that like it ended up part of this mash part is like how do you combine tower blocks and thrust burst and make a thing that works one of the ways that you do that is a different kind of difficulty which is like almost closer to like a flappy bird or something like asking mm-hmm. asking people to do something very very simple but to do it 500 times and never miss yeah that'd be perfect yeah just be perfect 500 times but the thing itself is easy almost every jump in cannibal yeah. is easy so even if you have a one percent chance of failing. Yeah. Like, you know, I forget where the break even is, but like probably after, you know, 30 jumps, you're going to have a 50, 50 shot of having. Failed. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, and those kinds of games are cool for getting people into a flow state. They're cool for, um, kind of onboarding people who don't play a lot of games because yeah. they don't have to learn a lot of stuff. They don't have to do the thing they're learning to do isn't that hard. It's just like, no, just do this one thing. Just this one easy thing. Yeah. It took me a while to get used to the boxes. You could stumble over because I was just so used to like in a, you know, platformer or whatever, I don't know, whatever you call it. We, now we call those games runners, right? That's like, (laughs) we didn't have those terms back then, but like, even just in like, I would think of it in terms of a platformer, like there's good things and there's bad things, right? Yes. And like I hit the box and like, oh, no, I hit a box and I stumble. That's a bad thing. And then yeah. like, it took me a while to be like, oh, well, I guess it's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. pretty it's weird. Con- it's contextual. It has like <laughs> contextual value or something. Um, and just thought that was like really cool and maybe a terrible idea. I just didn't know. But we'd already done the other thing. Yeah. We already made an endless game that just got harder until it was impossible. Right. And so... And this sounded interesting. Yeah. It, and and it was, there, was like a, there was a side interest in the idea of reactive procedural generation at the time. Right. Like it I was watching just, you. Yeah. It's kind of watching you. And it's not... So I wonder if... I mean, I wonder if Cannibal would have had success if you had just gone for the original model. I think it would have. I don't think it would have sustained interest for as long. It, like it wasn't sustaining my interest for as long. I right. like I would play it a little bit and be like, "Oh, 
2,000 meters, that's where... That's, yeah, that's it. Because if it gets... If it takes too long to get difficult, then it's too boring when you start playing. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, that's a super... That's a super good point. Yeah, yeah so, like, you, you want a sawtooth... Like, sawtooth difficulty is, like, a really tropey game design thing now, but that was, like... That was the... It was the fewest moving parts that we could figure out to sort of get a sawtoothy progression into the game, but have it be a thing that the player opted into when they wanted it to happen, as opposed to something that's like, you made it 500 meters, now something happened that forced you to slow down. Seems like this has been like a, you know, it's a thing that we've learned, like, don't make the player pay this one minute game tax for no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like the, the, the thing you see immediately in like Super Meat Boy, it's like, Oh, great. Like, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. as fast as possible, get right back into the thing. Yeah. Was like, there was, Kenal was also going to have, like, an intro. It was going to be, like, an intro animation that set the scene and explained some of the story. And it was going to be, like, a guy in an office, and he gets an email, and then he looks out the window and sees <laughs> right. these things, and he starts running down the hallway. And even that, that was going to be, like, a 20-second tax, and it was just like, nope, 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 nope. You press start. And it's like Super Mario One. You press start, game happens. Right. Nonverbal game happens right away. You press. You're like, "What's this?" Guy jumps out of a window. Yeah, that's it. That's what we're gonna do. Yeah, uh, and that felt that felt good and right to do. Yeah. So, how did you go about tuning like the jumping and the speed and like all of that stuff? Like, it was just all like crappy gut feel. Like there wasn't much. The only the only thing that was like intentional was. Um, we made it as original cannibal is a really weird aspect ratio. It's three, one. Okay. Uh, yeah. so it's like, I can't so you can see a long it. way ahead of you. It was like 480 by 160 or something. Uh-huh. So you have really, really far look ahead, but the field of view is still pretty limited. And uh-huh. so, um, it was like, it was the right ratio so that your brain processed it as feeling like you were moving really fast. Uh, but you still could react to buildings. Okay. I haven't done the math, but it ends up being something around at your top speed at that width. You have around, I think like, a 0.2 to 0.3 seconds to react or something. Right. You have a specific reaction time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that wasn't planned for, but that's what it, it boiled out to. That's what it, like, you could just tell by playing it. You'd be like, yeah. I, I'm pressing the button. And I, it's going, this is too fast. Yeah. This is awesome, but it's just too fast and it's not, um, not fun anymore, so it has to stop there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like smashing the aspect ratio was the one deliberate choice, and everything else was just like, this feels bad. I'm going to change this floating point number until it feels good. Right. Um, and there's a couple of the acceleration curves are weird, but not out of strategy, just out of like, it still feels bad, make it weirder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's like, there's a few thresholds at which your acceleration changes. So you start your acceleration is fast when you're slow, and then okay. kind of curves off a and little bit. Out. But it's not actually a curve; it's like tiers, it's like a little stair step, okay. basically. And that it was like close enough. <laughs> it was just like okay, like you could have done the math to make it. Like it could have been a proper curve, proper correct, probably. But it didn't make any difference. No, it was like it's a four four stair steps on acceleration made all the things feel good. Yeah. It's just like, okay, it's fine. I have something like that in Offworld that actually bothers some of the people who are modding the game because of the way the, like, the prices change when oh, you, when you're yeah. selling it. Like, if it's the, if the price is low, the price changes a little bit. And if the price is high, when you buy or sell, the price changes a lot, right? Mm. And you could have just like a, 
perfectly, you know, uh, I'm using my arms to gesture, so I'm not sure, <laughs> right. but like, you know, a nice curve. You can imagine like a nice smooth curve that changes over time. Yeah. And like off the top of my head, I just, I didn't really know how to like write that math. So I was like, I'm just going to do like three lines. Yeah. <laughs> well, like are just there's... super simple. And, you know, at the end of the day, like this code is going to be simple. I may have to change it later. I'm not going to forget this thing I spent four hours researching two yeah. years from now and have to come <laughs> back and change it. Like, it's better yeah. to put it this way. And, yeah. like, lots of the, and the, the modders are like, hey, look, I did the math for you. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's not, it's well, not fundamentally going to change the game experience. It just makes the code more complicated. I think, like, like some of the thresholding stuff and stair-stepping stuff is nice, too, because those are um, discrete things that mm-hmm. uh, sometimes signal better, too. Yeah. Like, I think if I had, if I had really, really perfect curves because i was like i was generating curves because it's an acceleration right they're acceleration tiers so the velocity the, the things that are getting generated yeah but have curves s- somewhere on in the back of their head they have a sense of, like i'm in first gear i'm in second gear I'm yeah gear, basically I'm gear, right? uh, and i think something about that it's just chunky. kind of feels pretty all right yeah uh, and uh, it's like oh, i'm at a certain speed and now like it's not I'm not speeding up as much, and now I've hit that next one, and it's yeah. it's way, way, way back there. Like I don't know if anybody's picking up on it while yeah. they're actually. Playing, I, I like but, that stuff very much, but it is going to peak because it has to turn off at some point. Mm-hmm. Like because there's we found the top fun speed for that particular game, yeah. and so it's going to turn off eventually. Yeah. Uh, and so like, does it turn off super gradually, or do you get a sense that like you've hit that top thing? Um, I don't know if anybody can feel it or not, but. Right. Mostly is like two two lines of code. It's like three variables or something. So they're like, <laughs> yeah, uh, all set. Yeah, uh, I I just have, I'm, I'm prejudiced against I'm prejudiced for integers also. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, <laughs> anytime I can use a f- integer is what I prefer in general. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. Um, okay, so then you the week was up. You were you were strict with yourself. Did did you have like a project lined up so you really you really had to stop, or were you just very good? About I was just trying to follow the rules? jam. Jam okay. was like you know just only do seven days, and I was like cool. And like a couple of those days were pretty long days. Cause yeah. The the prototype was one or one day maybe, and then there was the game jam, which is about two days, and that's where we put in the art and all the gameplay. But there was still no sound, uh, and so there was. There was a few polished things, like it needed a title screen and some other things, and then it had no sound effects at all, uh, or music or anything. Oh, uh, huh, the But to me, like the footsteps are like a yeah super core part of the experience. Yeah, so none of that stuff was there, and that was all the last day of development. Okay. So the last day of development was just me going around the house with like this won't carry on the audio, but I had like my MacBook. Like propped open, set a microphone on okay. it for doing voice calls or whatever, and I had like um, one of my shoes and another thing. It was just like going around the house and like putting the computer close to stuff and like hitting Pounding, it with things. See what like, sounded right. Yeah, and so like running <laughs> on a crane was like the we had like a Gordon Food Services pot for making pasta, and that's that's the crane foot feet. And then the normal feet is just like out on the driveway, I think. Okay. That sounds, uh, that sounds pretty much peak indie right there. Pretty peak indie. And like, there's supposed to be a cool sound. Like there's a little sound when you do like a little tumble, when you hit a box or uh-huh. when you do a big jump, there's there needs to be a little like sound for that. And that's like, I think that's blankets. I, put the, I just put the laptop on the couch and like threw blankets at the couch a bunch. <laughs> uh, and I don't remember what I did for the birds taking off. 
a couple of things are like royalty free. Okay. Because I couldn't do I couldn't they, I didn't fully explosions yeah. or exploding glass windows. Okay. So you did a little a little fully work. Yeah, it was I like think that's what that's called. Right? Well, it started out. I started out trying to just get sound effects that I wanted. I was like, yeah. just get free footstep sounds off of crappy database or whatever. And uh, it was taking so long to find the right sound hmm. that, like, I burned three hours looking really? for garbage online, and I huh. just got upset and was like, nope, not doing it. I'm just gonna go bang on pots with my shoe and. <laughs> Then I'll have the thing that I want, and it's going to sound dumb, but I only need that one clinky sound, yeah, and there's yeah. other stuff going on. And then um, uh, at the same time, uh, m- our main music collaborator at the time, uh, Danny Baranowski, uh, I was like, hey, man, I have this game, and I, I think it's turning out cool, but it doesn't have any music, and I'm broke right now. Or I don't have a budget to pay yeah. for music for a five-day Flash game or anything, but I had overpaid him for a thing we had done in the spring and he was like I don't care this looks cool and wrote the music in a couple hours and sent it over yep. and like packed it all up at like 11.59pm kind of a thing and just like posted <laughs> it and was like there it's done yeah. it's done hands off pencils down yeah uh, cool. and then um, so then what happened uh People liked it a lot. Uh, it was just a free web game thing or whatever. It, and again, it was like it was kind of like a mobile. Like maybe this is a thing that could work on mobile, um, but let's put it on the web and see what people think. And I think we ended up with like two thousand dollars in server overages. Oh wow! For the first month, okay. which was all the music. Yeah, because sure. Cannonball is like a it's, couple hundred kilobytes. Sure. Uh, but the there weren't places to post stuff like that. There like were. That? But I didn't know that it, this was going to be a problem. <laughs> so yeah, I could have just put it on an Amazon S3 bucket, and yeah. it would have cost like $17 or something. Wow. Um, Do you have any idea how many downloads that is? or you just It was millions of plays yeah. uh, in the first few weeks. Wow. And it, it tapered off to something slightly more manageable after sure. that. But it was uh, it was a lot of traffic, so it was like it was a few terabytes of MP3 downloads, basically, right. and we got a big big bill. Yeah, uh, which I, was money I could use to pay Danny <laughs> to make the music. It turns out, but um, instead the music and the free music and well, yeah, okay, so you pay for the I, music I, one way or another. Yeah, it just exactly. You go to your internet provider. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Danny did not get. He eventually got paid very very well, but. Uh. Um, but then I was like, oh, cool, people do like it. Maybe we can put that on iPhone. Yeah. Because um, it's one button. Yeah. And we just, um, we called the business model toilet tax, basically. We're like, yeah, it's fun to play online, but if you want to have it in your pocket, uh, then it's three bucks or whatever. Yeah. Um, and this was almost exactly a year after Boggle Clone came out, uh-huh. which was scandalously low priced at $199, and Cannibal was scandalously high priced at $299. <laughs> Things have uh, changed. Yeah. Uh, How soon after did you get the iPhone version out? A few weeks. A few weeks? Okay. Yeah, I think it came out right at the end of September. That's pretty good. So about a month, maybe. And how did it do on the iPhone? Um, initially, it did okay. Mm-hmm. It, um, we did a like a little... Um, Twitter was just kind of getting to be a thing, and so the web game had a thing where you could tweet your high scores. It had like, yeah. a little button. Um, and that's how it kind of one of the ways that it started spreading originally and uh i had a little twitter account and was basically like hey um you've been play- playing cannibal online and you like it we are, have an iphone version coming out 
Uh, and basically, if you're going to buy it this weekend, please, everybody just buy it on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people actually did that or actually paid attention to it or whatever, but we did. There was like a little thing around it because the idea was because we didn't want anybody at Apple. Nobody would return our calls, even though even though we made a good Boggle clone. <laughs> nobody wanted to talk to us, and uh, they were afraid what you're going to clone next. You know? Yeah, I think so. And uh, no, I think they were just swamped. Apple had no yeah, way, sure. and yeah. they still barely can handle yeah. anything that's going on there. And it was all it was so out of control, and. Uh, so we thought that if everybody who was going to buy the game, if you, if you were going to buy the game ever, as long as you bought it on the first day, then we would get on the top 100 list. Yeah. And then we would have artificial visibility and more people would be able to get the game or whatever. And it sort of worked. Okay. It sold like a few thousand copies. Uh, I think it was, I think it sold like 2000 copies on launch day or something like that. Okay. Um, which was great. Yeah. Or was it even that many? I don't remember what it had to be. It was whatever the like the threshold. We, we made it to like top fifty game or something like that of the, mm-hmm. by the end of the week. And, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, and, that's good. Yeah, it was it was not bad. Uh, but it was never top ten or anything like that. Um, but then it um, obviously I think uh, was a you, touchstone for a lot of other designers. Sure. Yeah. I mean, did you? <laughs> yeah. That's a. You can say that. <laughs> um, did um, hmm. at some point did you think about like taking down the free version? I mean, I guess it, I don't even know how like that stuff works. Like, oh, is that even possible? Like, uh, it it had already gone to a lot of places, but we we, we decided to actually leave it up and put it more places, yeah. and just put a big now on iPhone button yeah. on the title screen, and just decided this is the cheapest. Cheapest just, advertising we I'm can just make. I'm curious what would have happened if it you had just launched it as an iPhone game, right? Yeah, like, I don't know. I think it. I think it would have been all right. I think it was the right thing at the right time. Like, I think there had been there was a couple other endless runner ish things on iPhone before that, but were, they weren't fast. Okay, what were they like? They're just kind of, I don't know, boring, <laughs> boring and not attractive. But I, I mean, think, was it still, you know, close to the concept was, of like you're always moving? Score. There's one. Was there one button? It was like that thing or uh, I don't remember what, exactly what the controls were. So probably some of them were one. I didn't find out about these till like much later because people would be like, Kimball didn't invent it. I <laughs> I made Bouncy Pig seven, uh-huh. you know, two months before that or whatever, um, which is fine. Like I I I mean. Like again, like all this stuff, like Cannibal was so so thrustburst and yeah. so you know chopper or whatever. Like every, it's the simplest kind of game you can make. Right. Like, uh, and I think there were other things that were going to come out. If like if I didn't make Cannibal, somebody was going to basically make Cannibal. Sure. Within weeks, I yeah. think. There's a few um, games like that where it just seems like at some point someone was going to figure this out. Yeah. Right? I think um, so. Uh, it might not have been the exact set of ingredients. I mean, it was like a maybe it was a, a kind of a lightning strike in terms of oh, these things happen to fit together yeah. um, in an extra nice way or something. Well, I remember the first time I heard about Cannibalt. It was at it probably was at the end of the that year because it was a end of the year 
write up on Slate. They usually do like a video game mm, club thing yeah. or whatever. And they were talking about all the big games. And the one guy was like, you know what? The game that ma- that made like mattered to me the most this year was none of these giant games. It was this thing called Cannibal. Um, <laughs> and first of all, it jumped out at me as I like, you know, I was trying to follow the NEC, but like I'd never even heard of this. Yeah. You know, and he was like, he just, he was actually really into the, I mean, you know, he said like, you know, he enjoyed the gameplay for sure. Like this is really cool to play, but he was also super into the like light touch fiction of it. Yeah, of, yeah, like, yeah. It suggested all this stuff. We got without like being over explaining. I at received all. a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Like there was a like fan fiction. Like there was a whole. Um, and this is this was like an old attitude. Like this came from old games, old attempted projects where we had scope problems, uh-huh. and or I just would get lost making up all the lore and then never make the game yeah. and all of that stuff. And um, like all, those bits of Cannibal are super intentional, like yeah. uh, very much like here's a here's a couple of little things that we're gonna put in and I have I think it's fun to imagine yeah all the things that might be going on and maybe other people like that too um, but I'm not gonna uh, yeah I'm not gonna spell it out I'm not gonna yeah. give the and we still do this like in overland we still don't like spell out what the, like things what or have here. a have an epic name there's no like it's not a uh, uh, all the things I was just going to say kind of like throw shade at XCOM 2, which is not <laughs> fair because it's a super great game. Um, but like there's there's an approach to these things that I think is common and I understand why people do it, but it's just not our jam. And I yeah. think uh, one of the one of the things about it is it it um, I like the idea of being generous with the fiction. Yeah. And my because my favorite my favorite one is somebody had a better idea than mine. Mine was just like, oh, yeah, you're this dude and it's the end of the world and you never escape. Yeah. Um, which is, I guess, what all my games are about, uh, <laughs> it turns out. Uh, but a kid was like, uh, I wrote this little story about your game. It was like a 10-year-old kid on Newgrounds uh-huh. or something. And the story was that um, it was like an M. Night Shyamalan story or something. Like, this is a guy, the jumping in the game isn't stylized. He's literally jumping like 100 feet at a time and like 50 feet in the air. And he actually has superpowers, but didn't know it until that exact moment. <laughs> because he was just like, I got to jump. Yeah. He had yeah. jumped out of the window and then survived and then realizes at that exact moment that he has superpowers. And I was like, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. way better than anything that I was working on. And it actually explains what's going on in the game. Thanks, 10-year-old. <laughs> Yeah, I love I like I love light touch fi- fiction because yeah, I mean you can always go back and like change your mind about something or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But like it also just you know it just leaves room for different people to react to the yeah. Game and I, I tried to do it with Gravity Hook a little bit where it was like you're at the bottom of this hole and it's full of bombs and that's weird and uh, try to like have something there, um, but that that had like a little bit of lore sketched away somewhere, and Cannibal had no sketch. Yeah, it was just like finally, it felt like we had gotten we were for that size of game, we could introduce a couple of things, and they didn't have to have a deep framework to justify which. Um, what do they call it? Iceberg theory, like which little bits, which little bits are poking out of the yep. water. We could just make the bits poking out of the water, and we're confident that since only three bits were poking out, that yep. these ones could fit together. And the the effect that they caused was the kind of effect that we wanted, and that would be good enough. You got a retcon. 
Cannibals and Overland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Together somewhere. And Capsule. <laughs> yeah. And Gravity Hook. At the end of, your, yeah. end of your career, you'll tie them all together. Yeah. I had this grand master plan <laughs> all this time. The guy in Capsule arguably lives, though. Okay. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, Nobody um, else does, though. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I... Um, It'd be interesting to hear what you think about what sort of happened with the runner genre, like because it must be kind of like what's the first time you started seeing games come out that were like clearly influenced by Cannibal? Um, the first one was a guy that just emailed me, which I loved. So that was how I made Gravity Hook uh-huh. and got this like confidence boost that I could make games like that. It was a guy doing stuff for Adult Swim and was like, "Hey." Um, I pitching adult swim and I kind of wanted to riff on the cannibal thing. Is that cool? And I was like, yeah, man, go nuts. And that yeah. was robot unicorn or oh. something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I can't remember if that's the full title or not, but it was like super popular and yeah. had a, sequels and stuff. And it was, it had some funny eighties soundtrack right. and really over you the You missing one word. <laughs> yeah, there's something, or something. Ex- exploding robot unicorn, yeah, or yeah. I have to look it up. Um, but that was cool because that guy was just like, "Hey, I played your game. That was really cool. Yeah. I wanted to do a joke game about it for Adult Swim, and I have this funny art and everything." I was like, "Yeah, cool, go nuts. That's yeah. awesome." Uh, and then uh, most of the runner things that happened after that are. It's hard for me to like comment on whether the designs are good in a lot of ways. Um, cause I think they all have merits. Um, like Luke, at half brick, who's an sure. amazing designer uh, or not at half brick anymore, but, right. um, at half brick yeah. then did jetpack Joyride and, um, the, uh, yeah, that's the one, that's the one that stood out for me during yeah. that phase where, you know, it was like, Okay. Yeah, you clearly see there's clearly Olympians from Cannibal, and like, but like, wow. They, and I think it was actually there was one thing he might have done a little small thing right before Jetpack Joyride, actually, where it was basically Cannibal but slower, mm-hmm. and your guy with like a shotgun and you're shooting monsters or something. Right. Um, and then uh, obviously like Temple Run. Yep. Um, which. Uh, uh, I finally met Keith like two years ago or something and he just like I didn't know who he was and he kind of walked up and um, just said hi and like I just want to just want to say uh, you know uh, thanks for Cannonball that was really cool and I was like cool cool, cool. and Becca was like that's Keith uh, who was it Keith um, uh, something or other and I was like oh Temple Run guy okay yeah 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 cool um, I, but a lot of those games don't have the thing that I wanted, mm. which is just like the the exciting part. Mm-hmm. Like all I wanted is just like sweaty palms as fast as possible. And there have been a couple of little mobile things. There's a thing called Alone that is yeah, you, you, you very thrust burst. Right, yeah. uh, and uh, there have been like a couple of things where I thought yeah. like, oh yeah, this is like well, it's interesting. This is digging into the like yeah. getting. Uh, Sweaty Palms games mostly can be played by most people. Yeah. Realistically. And so anytime you get like Yeah. So it's interesting because that's so that's the emotional thing you were looking for. Right. Yeah. Which is which is cool, right? And you, you accomplish that. But like just lizard brain. Just like Right. But at the same time, by like paring everything down to like something super simple, it kind of opens up these other kind of like 
avenues yeah, or yeah. stuff to be built on top of that that wouldn't have happened without the like okay what's really important what's really important is like you know the controls are super simple like it's moved now past like just one button but still like you know they'll yeah, like swipe you between two or three yeah. lanes but like it's still you can see it still understands the concept of like okay the controls have to be simple yeah right and you just you keep going you're yeah. not you're, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not driving your but the thing i think or, i think like, what um i don't know if people do this consciously i mean some emails said this like somebody's get an email and they're like what about cannonball but with drop kicks or like cannonball but with guns or cannonball with, but um there was a bunch of stuff because i was i was so mad at mirror's edge at the time or whatever like mm-hmm. there was um, you're gonna have cool parkour moves. You're gonna be like jump on the thing and do a flip, and then jump on this thing and slide under this thing. Right. And it'd be like a you know some kind of input to do all these like cool contextual moves, and um, you just couldn't. As soon as you did it, the game would have to go slower. Yeah. And so like, I think there were some interactions with people that were weird because they were like, "How come? How did you not think to put guns in there?" And I'm just like. Well, because you you could only go like seven hundred pixels per second instead of eight hundred. Yeah. Like it can't. It just couldn't have anything else. It could only have jump. Like the and the reason that it ended up only having jump is so that you could go deliriously fast. Yeah. And uh, nobody. It, I don't think anybody was interested in that part of it. Um. And maybe like. And I don't know if that part of it is what made it successful. Even. Like I have no idea. That was why I made it. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think it's the simplicity that was like the. I mean, like so again, you hit like emotional note, which is great, right? But you also like found a, a specific, you know, I don't know, yeah. genre or subgenre or like specific mechanic that people could build off of. Yeah, we're right? I mean, we're and like there are, you know, I, th- I think it's good to make action games that aren't excluding people who haven't played tons of action games, yeah. and it was good to not ship a virtual D pad or whatever, like. Yeah. Yeah, all I mean, all things. there's just so many games have been tried for the iPhone, which are just trying to map all this stuff with from yeah. you know uh, totally different control systems, and like it's it's just not a good idea. You yeah, know? yeah, like you're it's making no good. a game that's like native to like the the control yeah. system. Yeah, and even like, even even swipes, I don't like the latency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. uh, and Cannibal treats the screen tap. Your jump activates as soon as the touch starts, mm-hmm. and then your jump height is based on how long you hold your finger down. Basically, there's a little bit of light Mario jump physics stuff going on, and yeah. that, that's and that's so there's no latency. If we were doing swipes, there'd be latency. Sure, and yeah. then it just wouldn't. You couldn't go as fast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like everything is like, how do you? Uh, yeah, everything about everything so you can go as fast as possible in a two D game, basically. Yeah. That's why, like, alone is really cool because you don't even have jump. You're just steering a little ship, and it has this like insanely oversensitive controls where, like, you you just like roll your thumb on the screen a little bit, and that mm-hmm. changes where the touch is being picked up, and that tilts your ship up and down. Sure, it's just like just super twitchy. Like, I don't know. There's some kind of like like games where you have very very small inputs and you get very very big outputs but there's not a lot of assistance going on it's it's still one to one it's still really direct i think are really satisfying mm. but that's not what all the other endless runners are about either yeah well i mean it just it was it's it's, it's a sturdy system you know mm-hmm. like subtle controls you're always moving right like you know i mean essentially there's like an aesthetic range right and you like it on the end of 
sweaty palms intensity, yeah. right? Yeah. But then there's the other end of like there's lots of obstacles and you got to move around and it's not mm-hmm. really about mm-hmm. going as fast as possible. Yeah. Maybe there's some stuff layered into the game. The, on the, the power end, and the blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. That's just, you know, that's, that's fine. So it's still based off of that structure. Yeah. That I mean, have. the far other end to me is basically Tetris. Mm. You can swipe left and right and yeah, pieces fall down forever. Yeah. And I, I guess that's kind it's, of the thing. It, it, not in a bad way. Like, yeah. I feel like, like, uh, Tetris is and will be like, a. a yeah, I mean, massive touchstone for everything I work on. <laughs> There's something right? wrong with Tetris. So, yeah. Sure. Um, uh, huh. It's interesting because, like, this may be a weird comparison, but, like, I can't help but think of, like, MOBAs um, because, so, you know, I think about strategy games a lot, right? And, like, like MOBAs were a development, uh, or a, it's an evolution of RTS games by making it simpler, and yeah. reducing the the load on the player. Yeah, all right? micro. It's yeah. not technically right, mobile players are probably mad if I said that, but it's the idea in many ways. Yeah. Was no, for like sure, for micro sure. Micro on your hero, you can unit and you can you can be all about micro because you only have one unit. Yeah, right. Like that's that's the revelation of mobas. Period. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, Cannibal. It's not fundamentally different, right? Like you you paired action games down to. Just this, yeah. this one thing, yeah. and you know, once once it be, you know once once you pulled out pulled through away a lot of that other I don't want to say junk or whatever, but like you know you you pared down this one thing, it became a whole yeah, yeah. a whole new a whole new thing that didn't exist before. Yeah, and um, I think like the uh, this is this will surprise no one, but um, uh, Thumper is a game that I feel like is. It's not endless. Or I don't know if it has an endless mode or anything, mm-hmm. but like Thumper is so completely a thousand percent in this spirit. Mm-hmm. Thumper is just like throwing away everything, mm-hmm. almost everything. There's barely a level, yeah. even, and it's just it's just speed and light and sound and super low latency, super crunchy controls and yeah. super simple controls and everything about going so fast that it's actually uncomfortable. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that there, I think there's a sort of curve you can look at it. Because they're like rock band. They're like, they were like, oh, Guitar Hero was cool, yeah, and yeah. now that's growing up into this rock band thing, and what if it went the other way? Well, way. Yeah, and it's funny because, again, that's like a hill. You can see sort of like the a curve or whatever where, you you know, complexity goes up and then it's got to go back down again. And it's interesting that basically video games have, have gotten to this point where at the very beginning of video game development, they didn't have a choice, right? It had to be simple. Yeah, yeah. Because they just didn't have the RAM or the processing power or whatever. <laughs> and slowly we kept adding stuff together, and RTSs, it was just like the like, you know, twelve year old design idea, twelve year old kids a design idea, right? Of like, I'm going to control a whole army, you know? And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, actually, it's not really a great idea. Well, they're like, oh, we have a it's, sequel coming up. We already made an army, and they're like, what about if there were three armies? Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, which is know, cool. Like, I definitely like. There are maximalist games that I yeah. absolutely will never get enough of. But, yeah, like, but like the the that the interesting way forward is often to go down the down the other slope of the hill where you're like, now I'm pulling stuff out well, intentionally. I used to argue like we actually like a co weirdly co authored like a uh, academic paper on. Uh, trying to figure out what does minimalism mean in games and why is it useful and what is it good for and stuff. And uh, it was going to be like a book project for a while. And like, this was where Campbell came from was literally 
Kyle Gray saying we should make games about minimalism this month. Uh-huh. And um, so I think like this, this stripping things down and you know, the whatever, there's nothing more. It's done when there's nothing left to take away, not when there's nothing more to add or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of that stuff. Uh, now that we're making a bigger game, it's so obviously about just having any idea what you're building at all. Mm-hmm. Like I, be very intentional about after well after all these overscoped games yeah. and having these projects where I didn't know what was going on, uh, the like the intense comfort of knowing exactly like like Gravity Hook having two moving parts. Yeah, I know everything about both moving parts, and I'm going to make them. These are the best versions of these two small crappy things that are even possible. Right, I know that those are the best, and mm-hmm. same thing in Cannibal has. One moving part, basically, maybe yeah. two, uh, and I know that they were exactly how I wanted them to be. Right. Uh, and I think for me, that's 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 the only thing that minimalism, like, and stripping down, like, the that you gain focus, that you might find new ideas, that you might find a way of presenting something old and complicated to a new audience in an accessible way. Like those are all really cool things. But I think on some level it's just like you can, you can know what you're doing at all. Uh That was my only, um, that's what I decided minimalism was for basically. Yeah. Uh, Was you, if you don't throw away, most of whatever genre you're working in, then you will inevitably be shipping stuff that you don't understand. Sure. Which maybe is a sign that I'm a bad designer. (laughs) And like, maybe there are other designers who actually do know what they're doing, even though it's a big giant thing, but I was getting so freaked out by baggage. Well, like every design we did an established genre, I bring all this stuff in and the game would be a mess. And it was like, I mean, certainly when you're every, every box was full of cockroaches. And I mean, certainly when you're starting out, you're going to raise your chances of success much higher if you reduce the number of parts to just a few things you can master. Yeah. So for sure. Um, I still feel that way. Overland has many, many moving parts, but it has a lot fewer than it could have. Yeah. And so you got to fight that constantly. Yeah. Like it's so easy to let it. Yeah. I don't know what to, I, I won't know what to do. And every problem we've had on the game is because I rolled something in from something else and didn't think about, uh, all the, unquestioned assumptions or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they're just, they just ambush you relentlessly. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on from Cannibal, let me ask you one more thing about it, which, you know, we talked some about like all the games is influenced and that, you know, it's kind of like spread out to you know, basically be a genre, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, make, you know, leading to countless games and I mean, who knows how much, you know, how much money or whatever it's 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 got like what does what does that feel like to be like you were just working on some project for a week and like it snowballed into this this enormous yeah it's pretty weird like it's in a museum somewhere (laughs) okay like i went to see it at the moma and it was like next to is it one of the like the 10 games they put yeah it's like in the design collection so it was at the moma and it was like tetris yeah (laughs) pac-man Cannibal and like Vib Ribbon or something like like actual actual pioneering work and then this weird thing stuck in there probably for some kind of, to give the collection some kind of contemporary whatever and not just be games from <laughs> it, 30 years ago don't have to, I mean what does it feel like 
uh, I mean, it's cool. Right. But, like, most of the time, I guess it's not, it's very, um, I don't know, there was a period where I really, really appreciated it because I, it gave me mobility and access sure. within the industry that I just didn't have before. Yeah. And, again, like, it's very disproportionate to its financial success. Um, mm. Its popularity with designers meant that I could go, like, I wanted to, um, I saw it. Jordan Mechner at a party one time yeah. uh, and went over and sh- I was like, Hey, I made this game. And like this, the jumping out the window at the start of the game is from Prince of Persia two. And yeah. the rotos, I try- I was very inspired by rotoscope's sure. character animation to do this character. I wanted that feel. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah. And I thought you would think this was cool. And he, he played it for a little bit and he goes, this is pretty cool. I think this could do well. Uh, it was like a year after it came out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but like that's not a conversation that I could have had, and then we you know got lunch a few times, and I consulted on a project he did later, and uh, so like that's a um, uh, I get to do advisory work with the GDC, for example. Right. I get to um, there's a bunch of stuff I get to do that I think uh, if it was uh, uh, a, a less influential design, the um, if I had, I, I wouldn't have this uh, these privileges if, just based on the financial success of it. Right. Yeah. So the fact that it has kind of a long reach in terms of influence is um, something that's been extremely, like, concretely, tangibly great for me and for our company and for the work that we do and for the kinds of help that we get and the mentorship we have access to, like it's like completely life changing. Like yeah. there's, there's life before cannibal and life after, and they're both very good, but life after cannibal is much, much, much easier. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I like that part and I don't think about the design influence a lot just because I don't think that, um, most of the designs that it influenced are very interesting. Yeah. Sure. Um, so it doesn't carry a lot of, um, I think it's cool. I'm glad that it like helped other people mm-hmm. make cool stuff. And like, there are lots of people who were bored and playing mobile games and it made them feel good. And there's little bits of cannibal DNA in there one yeah. way or another. And yeah. that's pretty cool. Um, I like that a lot. And it was really good for, um, uh, the guy who did the music has mm. this wild, amazing, awesome career in games now. And it's not solely from that, but it's, um, it was a big piece for him. And that's really cool. Uh, so it's just kind of like, it's created all these, um, like I'm talking about the opportunities it created. Cause that's mostly how I see it. Yeah. Like the, the design and design influence was, um, not great for me for a long time. Like, um, there was like the year after cannibal was Uh spent making more one button prototypes that were all Uh awful. Huh? Yeah. I was about to ask almost sort of the flip side of this, which is like, okay, you, you, you spend a week making a game, which leads to, you know, a new, a new, sub in, a new sub industry, a museum exhibition, right. um, a, like a, a substantial amount of cash in hand, right? Stuff that you really even um, didn't even know how to imagine that yeah. this stuff could happen. Anyway, like the the result was throwing out everything that we had learned, everything that I had learned about design and uh, about how to approach things and how to build things and how to think about things uh, that produced 
an environment in which something like Cannonball could happen was all thrown out the window completely. And I just started making yeah. awful games for like 12 to 18 months. Yeah, well, I was actually like, like pretty unhappy. Yeah, so I was going to ask because like at that point, you know, you can't help but like think of yourself like, you know, I want, you know, I want... I want to do something like this, like, like this again. I mean, it was only took yeah. me a week before. And, like, I just didn't need to do it again, yeah, right? Like, it was why basically, can't I do that again? It was basically, wow, I can make one of these a week. Right. And, you know, uh, every time I make one, it's a new game genre. <laughs> no, <laughs> no big deal. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was the worst. Oh, my God, it was awful. It was just like, it was just like a year of where nothing happened, kind yeah. of. And you, Which was you, like weird because I, I had been, it felt like I had been making real quantitative progress. I was making more and more interesting things on purpose. There was uh-huh. like a weird little, a weird little art game. Happen. The reason I was talking to Jason Rohrer about the Boggle Clone is because uh-huh. I had made a little art game. Yeah. Uh, after that, um, uh, and art game secret art game mailing list had like a big yeah. discussion about the game and was it just trolling or did it was i trying to do something on purpose and uh uh and i was still making little weird art things with like baby castles and different like underground uh, digital art things and and whatever uh but yeah like commercially it was just like uh, it was like wow, what a what a great breakout thing! Finally, a thing I designed. Right. My, like there's there's no real specific single influence here. Like I synthesized this, and everybody liked it. So I'm great at making things up. Yeah, and this is what I do. Yeah, and it was a it was a complete disaster. It was awful. Yeah, and were you uh, trying to make the same type of game? Over and over. Again? Uh, like, I didn't there... want to make sequels exactly, but it was very um, instead of instead of thinking about it the way that I had been instead of thinking about making games the way I had been, it, there was some kind of subtle shift where it became it wasn't important. It wasn't about like cool feeling, easy controls, and it was more like oh, one button, one button. That's the secret sauce. Mm-hmm. One button is what it's all about, and what are the what are different things you can do with one button? Um, which is like that's a cool theme for a game jam or something, but that's not like a really good design philosophy for like producing right. uh, games that you think are going to resonate with complete strangers and that you feel like are doing something cool and worthwhile. Right. Uh, it was awful, and this is like an, like a long period of time. Yeah. And a lot of prototypes and stuff that didn't really go anywhere. And, um, yeah, it was unpleasant. Mm. Uh, but, um, but at the same time, it was awesome because I was, like, Cannonball guy and I got to go meet, like, people who I looked up to a lot and, um, you know, got all this wild access to things and um, this kind of, like, status and yeah. stuff. I mean, I don't know how anyone would figure out what's the next logical step after something like that happens, right? I mean, it's such a sort of we like did a some, crazy we did, thing to come, yeah. come together, right? So, like, we ended up the... making like a bad port thing um, with some uh, folks that I don't know. It was just a, it was a kind of a not great situation. Like the next, it was like years before we finished another cool internal project um which was hundreds hundreds yeah um which is one of the only one of the only 
iOS games that Greg Woland worked on that, that didn't get an Apple Design Award. Um, <laughs> okay. I think it may have been in the running, but he also worked on Ridiculous Fishing and uh, Threes yeah. and um, uh, released Tumbleseed really recently. Uh, and just like marvelous designer and great graphic artist yeah. and really good friend. And we made a we made a tablet. We finally like finally found um, I think a thing that we really wanted to work on when. Um, yeah, so how did the yeah, hundreds come together? Uh, the idea was to take... Greg had made a little flash prototype that was kind of cool, but kind of shallow, and we wanted to try to... Um, it was a lot like Cannonball, basically. It was like a really, really, really simple core thing, and you could see a hundred different ways that it could grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought it would be cool to do something very... Um, very deliberately multi-touchy on iPad. And so we would take this really simple core and we would think about all the different, um, not gestural inputs, but like multi-touch specific things that you could do with this design uh, and what would come out of that and what would that look like and trying to be like rigorous, thoughtful designers about it and do lots of prototyping and um, uh, try lots of things and throw things out if we didn't like them and, I think it turned out cool. I was really, we were just like very satisfied with how it turned out. Yeah. It is a, it's a nice little puzzle game and it does multi-touch better than almost anything else mm-hmm. um, in a pure sense, in a mechanical sense and like finding cool things to do with two fingers on one piece of glass basically. Yeah. Um, and it's simple. It's extremely nonverbal. It, we ended up designing a really cool natural intuitive learning curve for it and everything and it was just a good little good little puzzle game project that went way over scope <laughs> and way over budget and like did barely better than break even mm. um but it turned out really cool sure yeah it's uh it struck me as really unusual because it was like it had the it had the format of a puzzle game in the sense of like one, two, three, you know, here are a hundred levels, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Make your way through them, right? And, but there's very few puzzle games like that where you're kind of left to your own devices to kind of figure out how to pass the level, right? Yeah. Where, where this is just like, well, stuff happens and these things respond in that way and like, you know, you'll figure out how to get through this. You don't, you know, there, there's not some lock and key thing, right? Yeah. Whereas the on the other side is normally when you make a game like that, it looks like, I don't know, threes, right? Where it's just like... Okay, I've, we've made up the system. We've got a mm-hmm. system of rules here, and we're going to give you a random set of stuff, and you'll just, yep. you know, you'll just yep. keep, you'll just keep doing it, right? And yeah. Like, there's very few other games that it follow was, that format. The, that you guys did there. The puzzle design of it is one I ended up really liking. So there's there ends up being two kinds of puzzles in hundreds, and the puzzle format that I like the most, and that um, I think has influenced other stuff we've worked on in like weird, subtle ways, is we we were doing a lot of very, very designed puzzles mm-hmm. um, for a long time on that project. So we'd say there's a obstacle here, 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 and here, and these things are here, and the trick is, it's like there's a little puzzle trick, which is you, these things, you do it at just this right time, and they bounce, and then it does the thing, or whatever. Uh, and uh, some of those puzzles were cool, and some of those puzzles weren't cool, mm-hmm. and they were all pretty hard to design, and uh, if people couldn't find the trick, then they didn't work as, as well. And the majority of puzzles in the game by the time we were done with the project were puzzles of uh i don't know exactly i don't know there's no name for it or whatever but the idea was a puzzle is just 
different ratios of oh. ingredients. Right, yeah, basically. yeah. Basically. Right. So you can say, oh, this puzzle has four freezy balls and five shrinky ones and a saw blade, and that's it. And they're and we don't place them anywhere. Right. It just throws them out and they bounce around a little bit and they're in random positions every time you try, but it turns out that in this particular game each of those configurations within some reasonable limit has nearly random configurations almost always has its own little strategy right. and the starting points don't matter. Yeah. So and it's almost like stochastic level design. Yeah. yeah. And you could, and which the, is not the way like cut the rope or train yard. No, or not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's always <laughs> content based stuff. And we finally found this weird little sweet spot where as long as we had the right mechanics where things uh, were very interdependent and they would affect each other. And so like the classic example is like there's saw blades which if they you're trying to inflate these circles, and if the saw blade touches the circle, it shrinks down to zero again. And then there are these freezy things, and if they touch your circle, your circle freezes, and you can't make it get bigger until you thaw the ice out with your finger, and then you can make the circle get bigger again. Uh, but then there's kind of a fun interaction where if you have all those ingredients on a level, you can inflate your circle up to a certain size. Mm-hmm. The ice can hit it. It can freeze it in place. And when the saw blade hits, it'll just bounce off now. Yeah. And so now the ice was bad, before mm-hmm. but now in this scenario because those things are here it's actually good yeah. and it might freeze the saw blade if it touches it too if the little freezy thing gets there um, so it's kind of like cannibal crates again where it's like oh we found little ways for when the ratios are different you value these things differently um, because the mechanics are designed so that that can happen uh, and uh, I don't know Three quarters of the puzzles are so how like did that. it end up being over scope because it looks so simple right like- uh, it's it's the old it's just the uh, the final product looks very simple. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to make something look that simple, right? Yeah. It's work, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we just went through every every cool mechanic that ended up in there that is simple and nonverbal and communicative, and you can unfold it on your own. Had five previous terrible versions. Sure. Ice was time bombs at some point, and before that, it was something else. Like, um, like. And everything from multi-touch things like what if okay two fingers on two circles at the same time and that's kind of interesting and what if you have to keep one finger held down over here and then you do something else over here and what if you can kind of knock things around like air hockey with this piece but then what happened and then um uh, but that was i like that puzzle format i would love to do another game that was yeah completely about that it's well, like it's, here we have, we have 12 cool ingredients and it turns out yeah. almost any ratio of them is going to produce uh, an uh, an emergent strategy. Yeah. Well, for sure, most it's not dictated by us. Yeah. Most puzzle games, like I have a very similar path with, which like, oh, first few levels are 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 fine, and then at some point, I I see like the designer's hand, right? Like, yeah. You know, like, okay, now this is the puzzle where I'm trying to do this specific thing, and now there's the puzzle where I'm trying to get you to this specific thing, and like, obviously, there's elements of that in hundreds, but like, yeah. You know, it's more like you know you feel like you're more adapting on the fly because the, the, the levels just don't feel that heavily authored. Right? Yeah, we liked the feeling. It felt a little random. It felt a little brownian. It felt a little like, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. I want to say honest again, but I don't know if that's the right word exactly. But it felt like uh, pure, yeah. maybe or something. Yeah, the harper for me though was there were a few levels where. It's like, I know what I want to do, 
but like like the actual execution is something yeah. that yeah. I'm having a hard time with. Right? Yeah, I don't think every puzzle like we um, we were like iron fisted about the first twenty five levels. We knew those had to be absolutely perfect. Every mm-hmm. single first first twenty five levels has to be a very specific, perfect curve, and then there are there's definitely like a few left fieldy puzzles after that, and they're they're honestly like they're filling in gaps where they were they were the best puzzles that we still had from the earlier phase and we didn't have enough mechanics to flesh out an entire all hundred puzzles with just with different ratios right. so it's like that got, that stuff got us to a certain point but they also the good ones help a lot with pacing Actually, it feels nice to go through a few random puzzles and then arrive at something that's a little more structured and has sure. a little trick, and then you're off kind of yeah. more exploring the randomness again. Do you think you would still do it something? Still do a puzzle game this way though, where even though it's kind of kind of stochastic, it's still you know it's still like technically authored, right? As opposed to like something like threes or drop seven or whatever, yeah. where it's just a set of rules and or I like or whatever. I like. Um, this puzzle design approach in hundreds is, is basically about subsets mm-hmm. and subsets being a way of um, controlling uh, controlling things or producing outcomes that you like while, while like it's a it's a deck builder concept on some level right. and um, we use it in a bunch of projects now and I think hundreds was the first time where I was like really specifically thinking of all right, our, our, we have 12 to 15 mechanics or cards in the game, and the levels are going to be four of this card and six of this card and three of these and one of these, and we'll shuffle them up and put them out, and you have to deal with it now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, subsets as a... Um, so almost all these games have like randomness or procedural generation things going on in them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's a you struggle constantly with um uh poor differentiation you like we have we have a bunch of random things and we put them all together and uh the outcome is um kind of mushy mm-hmm. every level is sort of so the same on the some same. level yeah. and uh subsets are just like the most low hanging elegant possible thing that you can do to get around that they mm-hmm. automatically theme the level for you uh they automatically uh focus your attention so you're only thinking about two or three classes of objects that are being instanced essentially and uh and then the emergent mechanics if you have the right setup and everything i think tend to be stronger and more specific so the strategy that's produced by this thing is it tends to be more interesting yeah. uh and i would i would totally a thousand percent do um you know it might be i might be more inclined to try to have the subsets be random but um the idea of subsets would definitely be there mm. and the thing that we ran into is um we didn't really know how to satisfy to indicate progression in a satisfying way sure. and subsets were like intensely easy to author. Mm-hmm. You just plug in four numbers and then play the level and see if it's cool. Right. Yeah. And, uh, maybe it wouldn't be. And then you'd, you'd go have dinner and come back and go like, Oh, we should do like one that has six of these. That'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, 
so I mean, for that one, it's definitely a trade-off. I think now I would be tempted to try to find a different way to make progression satisfying and have the just like escalating subsets, Mm -hmm. um, be a thing that goes on. But, uh, I don't know. I think I would still do it. I would still, I would, and I would always, always, always try to find a way to do that rather than to just hand author 500, (laughs) 500 levels where every single thing is hand placed, even though I will play that kind of game and love it very much. Like I just I I could, I could never make a game like that. That just, yeah, that seems like so much work. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, oh man. Cool. All right. So what uh, what came after hundreds? Uh, there was a dark time again. <laughs> Another dark time. Another dark time. Uh, there was some legal stuff that happened, uh, and we started to kind of shift things around and. Uh, uh, we ended up shuttering the mobile game company mm-hmm. uh, or um, sort of folding it into our contracting company in a way. Uh, and we started working on a game called, initially called Grave and then renamed Portico that we never shipped. We oh, I remember that game. Nine months. Yeah, I remember I played a couple versions of it. Yeah. There's a fourth secret version that nobody's played that's even better than the third version that some people played, uh-huh. which was much better than the first or second versions. Yeah, but uh, it just never worked. Yeah, it had interesting parts. The fourth version. But... The only reason the fourth version almost started working is it started being very, very much about subsets. It was like a little tower defense. It was like turn-based tower defense with subsets of obstacles um, that were very. Inter uh, interactive with each other, um, yeah. a little bit like hundreds, but kind of more lockstep and on a grid. Yeah. Um, and that version of it was pretty cool, but by then I was so terrified of making mobile games that we just didn't make it. Really, that was the issue. That was part like of the it. Business model. There was also a gap, and other things had come up. So sure. my collaborator on Portico was uh, Alec Coloca, who. Yeah. Uh, Portico took us so long to try to make sense out of and was not turning out very cool. And in the meantime, uh, Night in the Woods and Overland had both started. Right. So this is back in 2014, probably. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, we're just like, this is. Portico's not fun, and these other two projects are awesome. <laughs> like, That's all. On. So it sucks that that was nine months, but we also had not, like, I actually would defend. I used to feel like that we, we really, really screwed that up. And like, I, there are lessons that we need to draw out of that experience because there was a lot of resources and a lot of time, but, um, we also didn't have anything else to do. It was the coolest thing we could think of. Mm. The other projects weren't cool yet. Right. Uh, and there was a lot of promising stuff in there and it did end up yielding a really cool prototype that had a bunch of cool stepwise turn-based stuff in it that influenced Overland a bunch. So, Okay. Like, uh, how did it influence Overland? Um, I remember it, it was, you know, was kind of like a puzzle was, game with like different paths and every turn the creatures move forward. Yeah. Um, uh, I think my, I remember my biggest issue, I think, was like the question of whether the attack happened and then the move or the reverse. I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. Yeah, like, and nobody could ever sort it out. I thought it was, the, I thought it was the, like so obvious and no matter what I did, it was so incomplete as a game design and uh, we had done so much work on... Because the what, game hinged on the player knowing completely. exactly what's going to happen. And they never knew. Yeah. They could never tell and I thought it was so obvious. 
and uh, no, that's that's the hard part. I mean, you wrote the code. I presume you wrote the code. So like, mm, Alec was oh, Alec wrote the code. Okay, I was right. I was kind of doing art and design, and but you were close um, enough to it that like, oh yeah, you, know, you had internalized it. So, but every time we changed it, I was like, now it's perfect and super obvious, <laughs> and and it never ever ever clicked with anybody. Even like, like even if I explained it, people would lose it. I wonder like, what would happen is if if you had a like a literal like look ahead button, you know, like as soon as you mouse over yeah. the intern button, it would like you know basically give you. A, I think a I think at some point of what, what, like, what it would, would look like next. We had tried to fix it so many times, and then we just lost confidence that even if we did fix it, if that being fixed would actually make it, make it fun better. for people sure. still. Because you're still, it's still unproven whether this is like... Yeah, we couldn't even tell if people could play it. It's and hard. So Sometimes projects just, they kind of get poisoned because you've run around, you've run the circle a few times. Too yeah, we we had, it was that, like that was the best version of it by far. And that was three versions in, eight or nine months in. And it was not at all obvious that it was going to pan out. But it did produce a little... Uh, another little prototype that tried to simplify it even more and it's on a very very small grid and units just move one one square at a time it's kind of top down and even more abstract that one still has problems where people can't tell what's going to happen well enough Um, but it had uh you know this bad guy if he dies the four tiles around him take damage Mm -hmm. and if those guys do damage that stuff can chain react right uh and when this thing dies, it shoots a thing. And if that thing hits another thing, then, you know, yeah. a thing happens there. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of all about um, really satisfying chain reactions. And you didn't build traps anymore or do any of that stuff. You just touched on it. I want to kill this guy this turn. I get to tap yeah. one thing each turn. I'm going to collect a coin or smoosh a bad guy or whatever. And But it was all about getting guys in a position where smooshing a bad guy would cause a really satisfying right. chain reaction. Um, but it was also the first, like, it was accidentally a turn-based yeah. combat game. So is this the thing that led to Overland? Is that what you're it didn't thinking? lead to it, but it was just sort of happening at the same time okay. while we were figuring out. Okay, so how, does, how, how did Overland come about? Um, Overland was, uh, I was just playing a lot of the XCOM reboot Mm -hmm. uh, and I was also playing a lot of 868 Hack um, by Michael Bro Mm -hmm. which is a really beautiful elegant little it's like the exact opposite of XCOM in so many ways it's it's, they're technically both strategy games in a way Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, 868 is played on a 6x6 grid I think it's teeny teeny tiny and uh, I think it's bigger than that, but basically. seven by seven maybe. It's really small, yeah. uh, and but in eight six eight, it's like every move because the grid is so small and the stakes are so high. It's a little permadeath rope like yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, like for me, it felt like fifty percent of the moves in eight six eight were life or death moves. Yeah, we're gonna kill you. you yeah. Know, yeah, if you go up or you go left. That's literally life or death, and then the next turn is the same thing, and the next turn is the same thing. And when you get good at it, it's it's a little bit less that, and there's a bunch of other cool stuff going on. But, uh, and then I was playing a lot of XCOM reboot, which I love very much, but which has these um, big uh, kind of uh, anticipatory like place setting phases of gameplay. Uh-huh. Um, especially like the vanilla uh, 
version of Enemy Unknown, I think, where uh, you like leapfrog units for like 20 minutes or something, uh-huh. or 10 minutes until you pop the first pot, and then you do like a, a combat thing, and then there's a bunch of life or death wild. Uh, exciting stuff happening. When you say leapfrog, you mean like you're taking careful steps forward, making sure one yeah. guy is covering the next guy. Yeah, exactly. And the, the newbies are going out front and yes. flushing things out, and the snipers in back taking sure. care of business. Um, and it's a, it's a very like very very deliberate slow thing, but in it feels it starts to feel very routine or very algorithmic, and it has really cool psychological effects. And you have to, in some ways, like independently invent that style of movement on your own which feels really cool but also like as a at that point like father of two kids like the i'm just like man it would be nice if you could do an XCOM map in like five minutes sure it just, just takes too long i mean yeah. it's i think this is one of XCOM's big problems is that the way the game is structured encourages very conservative play Hyper conservative. Right. If you're playing yeah. on the, but you can just set it on an easier setting, and then yeah. you can be wild. But it feels, but it does feel like there's tension. Yeah, I mean, either you make the game too easy for yourself, or you know, it could, yeah. it's really conservative play. And and because um, those settings, like this, the difficulty settings, the permadeath and the really hard, high damage and bad accuracy, all those things bring out all the best parts of that game. Right. You suddenly realize that every tech tree decision is life or death now like smoke grenades versus running and one extra tile or something that's a big deal using your smoke grenades every battle is like a big deal like yeah. all that stuff has well, weight but only if you play it on those super hard settings so here's the thing with permadeath permadeath has is very mm, the usefulness of permadeath has a lot to do with the actual real time length of a game yeah right 868 hack like is minutes yeah. right so it can be as extreme about putting you in do terrible situations you have to think about every single move as possible because yeah. like you're only going to lose a couple minutes of time yeah right this, this, there's the, there is a streak thing in 868 but i won't go into it right now yeah, but there's a there's a wild brutal sure side of it just for the sake of completeness but the general 868 play is yeah right and seven minutes disappears oops right and you know, like FTL. lesson learned Right, like it's you know it's pushing that envelope, but it's still mm-hmm. you're talking about what maybe an hour and a half game, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like that's still like a single session, right? And you're like mm-hmm. you're gonna win, you're gonna lose, and you're gonna have some resolution, yeah. right? It's the length um, of a movie, maybe. Yeah, and XCOM, you're talking about fifty hour campaign, yeah, weeks or of play, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so for me, they're only for me XCOM campaigns are only about six hours long because that's when my sniper dies usually, and then, <laughs> and then you're you like, just oh, well. have to roll it all down. Yeah, well, which is which is exactly the issue, right? Like, yeah. um, like it's it could be that those two things are just not a good idea to fit together. Like there is some upper bounds on if you have permadeath, like how long um, can your game be? And this is still actually a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I. Um, we have our own take on this in Overland, but I think it's very satisfying and feels good from like a player story side of things to be able to recover. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't mind, like a lot of the permadeath aspects in XCOM and the way that they give decisions an enormous amount of weird weight. It's not just, will my little avatar get hurt? It's yeah. will my whole campaign end? And I'm like 28 hours yeah. in, yeah. Uh, so the issue is, I think that they conflate. It, it's e- very easy to conflate permadeath and consequence, 
Right. Right. Like there's just this subject like, well, they're like, finally, games have consequence and consequence means permadeath. Like, well, no, that's that's not actually the same thing. Yeah. Right. Like imagine XCOM where nothing has changed except death equals three weeks injury leave. Right. right, up to three weeks. Yeah, right. So like, you just have to survive the next the, three encounters, and then your sniper, who's right. the only reason that you do anything good in that game, is right. back in action. And now, yeah, and you know, there's a full range of injuries, right? Like you have, yeah, yeah and they could maybe lead to some permanent effects on your character, but like yeah. death is just off the table, yeah. right? Like you now have a game where you don't have to be hyper conservative, and like generally mm-hmm. speaking. So here's the thing. If your goal is to create paranoia, like you want, you know, you talk about the sweaty yeah, palms, right? Yeah, like, yeah, but if yeah. instead your goal is paranoia, like they've done that, right? Yeah. Like mission accomplished, checkbox, yeah. right? And it's the end of the world. It's a reasonable right. set so, of, of things to try to evoke or whatever. Right. So if, if that's your goal, that's fine. But like generally speaking, and I hate using the word fun because it's such a generic term, but like it's fun to be play games uh, not aggressively what's the opposite of conservative you know like you're you're yeah. taking initiative yeah you're, or you want to you want to take risks that are fun you want to try like the 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 only thing that i didn't um you know giving players a capacity to think up an experiment mm-hmm. perform the experiment measure the results and then use that feedback to change the way that they're playing uh is uh a loop that I love. Like mm-hmm. I love that loop as a player. I love to try to build situations as a designer in which that loop can happen. And uh, if an experiment means that your 30 hour campaign ends, yeah, I uh, like that's a high price. Are you really going to do an experiment or are you going to maybe stick with the same units? Yeah. Uh, and in sticking with the same units, you're actually loading yourself up with a single point of failure. And now you're more likely, you're less like, even less likely than before to do more experiments. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you want to give the players a reasonable range of actions where yeah. they're like, I'm comfortable, ta- I'm comfortable taking a chance here because I know the worst case is not like, well, and this was you know, a, the whole a very overlandy thing was sorting out really early on. A68 was such a big inspiration for mm-hmm. it and wanting like every turn where like, it's going to be like a little John Carpenter thing. You have like these three or four guys wandering alone in the mm-hmm. darkness fighting monsters and they'll each have a little skill like a pandemic or something like that. And um, they'll work together and sometimes somebody will get cut off and abandoned or killed by monsters and that'll be really thrilling and it'll be permadeath and it's gonna be just like 868 like every time you decide to move south instead of east or something that could be the end of everything for your characters and figured out that um, it just doesn't work in the format mm-hmm. like it, we, it, the um Gulf, the the gap between every action you do matters right. in the game, and every action is life or death. Yeah, in the game is like uh, I, the other side of the scale works way better in Overland. Yeah. At least, uh, like I can say, it, like objectively, right. that is better for the game, for the format, for the pl- length of play session, for the kinds of things. But you do have to then balance it out. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not getting your consequences from erasing the player's save file or whatever. Right. Uh, where do you get the consequences from? And are they systemic consequences? Are they emotional consequences? Like a lot of Overland stuff is just people like dogs a lot. Yeah. 
I mean, consequences. Nobody, nobody wants to see something happen to their yeah. dog. That's yeah, all. That's, that's that's a great. That sounds great because, like, yeah, you very much don't want it to happen. But clearly, in the fiction, you know that like the game's not going to end because something bad happens to the dog, right? Yeah, you'll still so. keep going, and we have like uh, even if you run out of gas, which is the thing you're never ever ever supposed to do in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only resource you have, basically. Right. Uh, you still get uh, like a little saving roll thing. You can walk off the side of the map into. Uh, basically a pit full of monsters that'll always have one car and one can of gas. And so if you can navigate monster hell and grab the gas and grab the car, then you can get back on the road. And what was formerly a permadeath situation, basically of you effed up and you don't have any gas dummy game over instantly. Now you have like a dramatic saving role player instigated, like final, possibly final vignette or like, uh, I don't think I'm allowed to use the word or the adjective epic, but um, you'll have like a really, a really thrilling last minute. You know, catch yourself at the last minute, and now your adventure continues after all. Except Jeff got left behind. Right. Yeah. Uh, Does a so another issue that it's like, like, but I think it's a balance question in some ways. Yeah. Like if you're balancing for drama, there's a bunch of ways to balance for drama. Yeah. And a lot of games are not balanced for drama. They're balanced for math because they're competitive on some level. Right. And if you're doing that, the burdens and the constraints that you're dealing with are completely different. And yeah. We don't have that. Like Overland from the very get go was is all about the pandemic thing. We want like good post LARP player story breakdown thing and we will absolutely change math if it makes that part better right even if it makes some aspect of the game system unbalanced mm-hmm. air quotes i'm doing air quotes okay <laughs> um so another issue that like you know games and kind of like the XCOM genre have is like an issue with like character progression in that you know you kind of have a sense that you need to get your characters a certain level so that you can succeed long term. Yeah. Do you guys have that issue or like? Uh, we have a opposite and related, but opposite, but and partially unsolved problem. Okay. Which is it's a survival game. Right. The idea is that it's kind of a Walking Dead type of scenario where you have a, a plucky band of regular people who maybe don't have a lot of special skills and the whole point is that they never become ultimate warriors. They never become super strong because then is there a progression period? There is, but it's not, not all the pieces of it are done and I'm not completely satisfied with it, but the pieces that we have, I do like, uh, so there are, um, there's essentially like story progression or individual character event progression or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just called badges internally, but um, they're like little special stamps that individual survivors can get when really significant things happen. Okay. So if they kill a dude in cold blood, they'll get like a murderer brand or a murderer badge. Um, If, and is that just narrative or does that change right now? It's just narrative. Okay. Um, and but it, it shows up and we can reference it in a bunch of other places. Um, so beyond and, that, there's no real ability progression. Uh, there used to be a thing where people there was a, 
chunk of people's special ability characters. Some characters have special abilities, and a chunk of those were walled off behind traveling together for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, and it felt bad and weird and wasn't fun. Um, so we took that out. Right. Uh, and I think there's going to be pretty much all the plans right now are for, I think, primarily for cosmetic progression. Okay. Um, there's one... Actually, I can't talk about what we're doing for all of it yet. Um, uh, we're going to be shifting some things around, and there's going to be at least three, maybe more, progression things. But one is going to be this narrative progression yep. thing. Uh, and one of the avenues is going to be um, based on our scavenging system. So mm-hmm. instead of leveling up through XP, you will... Um, if you're dumpster diving, sometimes you find a sort of a personal item. Uh-huh. And personal items are very, very small items that don't go into your inventory. And instead, your player like puts them in their pocket, but maybe it's a lighter right. or some other thing that has an actual ability. It has a systemic effect. Um, so, uh, And the other one is uh, cosmetic progression, where you might find a fancy hat right. uh, or a new jacket or something okay. like that. But it sounds like essentially the scale of progression is significantly different than it is in it's super different and part of that is um that overland tends to be most interesting when it's tuned in such a way that there's rollover uh ideal in a lot of ways ideal if you're if you finish the game with a completely different group of people than you started with really okay and maybe that's your fifth completely different group of people and your so you're a heroes sing- and the people you're attached to have cycled out. Okay. Are you a, you start as a single character? You start as a single character. Okay. And uh, right now in the first level, it's always you meet somebody uh-huh. and you um, hop in a car. And, and ultimately, the only win condition is whether you that specific person can make it all the way through. It's uh, the journey, basically. No, it's sort of whether the like torch gets passed in a way. Oh, really? So yeah. you could the first character could die. Yeah, Jeff could die in the first level after meeting Claire. Uh-huh. And Claire would be your party now. Is there a fictional thing like you're transporting this, you know, knowledge or like There isn't. And it, it was weird for a long time cuz we didn't know how to do a bunch of this progression stuff. Uh-huh. We hadn't figured out that um, I feel it was very matter of fact about it earlier, and probably a lot of designers would have gone there right away. But it took us like a year to figure out that all of that you Overland has no party progression or player progression mm-hmm. at all. Everything is survivor and vehicle progression. So vehicles can get upgrades, right. um, characters can get upgrades and items and skills and cosmetic things and all of those pieces. But they're all anchored to those little things and. Um, you, the player, are just sort of taking care of this group. And right. sometimes they get a new car, and sometimes two people get abandoned, and only one person continues, and, some, and then they find a dog. And it's all like a thing that just cycles. Wow. Uh, okay. And everything has to be attached to those concrete things, or else nothing yeah. makes sense. Well, it's like that reason. picture of the season one cast of Walking Dead, right? Where you like X out. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, the eight, you know, nine of the eleven characters. Are <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, yep. Um, I really want that specific thing, and is if you actually want to do that, and you actually try to embrace that, then it you eventually get to a point where you're like, oh, everything has to be attached to them, and then the game over screen. Um, 
that we're working on right now um, that probably will still exist by the time this comes out is uh, basically that Walking Dead graphic. Mm-hmm. So when you get game over, either you made it to California or you didn't, right. um, you see everybody that you met along the way. And um, and you have a little map that shows how far you made it and everything. And all of the sort of... Um, hopefully a lot of the expectations that um, strategy gamers are going to bring to this game that aren't being met by traditional progression systems might be met by these narrative systems instead. I mean, I don't think progression systems are in any way necessary. Like, it's just... I don't think they're necessary, but they do serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, they're doing a bunch of stuff. They're letting you know... They're letting you know as a grown-up, hey, this game isn't a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you're getting somewhere. Uh, They give you context. They give you new goals. uh, You know, new motivations. Like, those... They're really elegant way to address like 10 nasty problems and uh, because it's an elegant way to address 10 nasty problems every strategy game has it and because every strategy game has it people are going to expect it here and it feels like uh, we have to we have had to roll a lot of weird things almost from scratch to try to address these the expectations that people are bringing in which hopefully doesn't sound whiny because it's not like it's not like I don't feel like, oh, because this game has Chivos, we have to make our game dumb or something. It's not that at all. It's just like all the things, a lot of the things that people get out of a progression system are normal Mm -hmm. emotional wants and needs to have while you're playing a game. And we don't, we're not addressing them through those avenues. We have to address them somehow, I think. Or we're at least trying to. Because I think like people want to know how far did they get and how far are they trying to get yeah. and how far are they going to get next time? And do they feel do you have a, like, do you do have they a feel like the next run? Like how often you want people to be able to make it all the way through? Not exactly. I like, I have, I have a rough notion again, like it's sort of like my mental map. of The game is, is sort of like a walking dead themed pandemic or something and i don't i don't remember how many times we played pandemic until we really won mm-hmm. um on like normal vanilla rule set we probably played 20 games or something yeah. and then finally I mean, for those type everything. of games it's super important you lose your first game yeah 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 and you want to lose <laughs> for the right reasons you yeah. want to lose under certain conditions and you want yeah. to be able to reverse engineer things that you could have done better based on the state of the board and everything and those are all uh, those were things that were very, very uh, forefront in Overland Design for like the first two years yeah. or something. It'll be interesting to, to think about. Well, people always say like you learn from failure. Right. You know, failure is how people learn, but you don't learn from every failure. <laughs> no. Especially if you're like, doing the same failure over and over and over again. It's the yeah, exact same type It's of really easy to make a completely opaque failure that no one can learn sure. from. Yeah. I'm good at it. So here's another question. Like if you know you have the sense of like, okay, you you know you have this big goal, maybe it's hard to get to, you're probably gonna take three or four playthroughs before you can do it. And at least, then, yeah. you know, even after then, you know, you maybe only do it fifty fifty. But there's I think there's gonna be a number of people who if that was the situation, they they beat it they, be, they finally beat it, they're probably going to be done. They'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. that's it, I'm done. I'm yeah. And maybe that's okay, but like, presumably it's important to think through, 
like how you lead people to like see like this is something I want to come back to over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Like you know the most the most easy comparison in my mind right now would be like FTL, which solves this by having different ship layouts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now you right. have an alien ship and the rooms are set up like this. Yeah, and it's so gonna force you to. It's you're, gonna, not gonna, you're gonna have to teleport guys now instead of this yeah. other thing. And right? from and from the very get go, from the very first level, the way that you play the game, the way that you play through the entire game this time is going to be fundamentally different. Right. So Your strategy will change in some concrete fundamental way. So have you thought about that? We have, and like right now there's um, we have a bunch of things that we want, like we we talk a lot about the fact that other games do this. Right. And I think a lot about the fact that I don't I don't like any of the ways that it one-to-one maps to Overland yeah. right now. Um, there are some ways that we think we might be able to do it. Our director has proposed, you know, the first level is like a parking lot. Uh-huh. And the parking lot fills up with cars. And so the start of your game, you know, you in-game, if you've gotten to Zone X, you can play the game with a school bus if you want or right. something. But um, Overland's all about party and vehicle rollover yeah like sure. like we cycle things out all the time so like uh, having like these unlockable things at the start seems kind of weird in a way or um you know maybe you get certain character abilities are present in your starting character but that guy's probably gonna die uh, anyway. after 20 minutes yeah. <laughs> so that feels kind of weird um uh and the the most promising stuff i think right now is all built around um, the sort of the road trip conceit. Uh, and so it's things like, um, hopefully, uh, (laughs) hopefully this isn't very, very dated and we've managed to find a way to do this in scope, but, um, we really like the idea of having, uh, variant biomes. So Mm -hmm. biomes are the equivalent of like game worlds or zones in overland. And, um, uh, being able to choose halfway through the grasslands whether or not you're going to go through the northern Rockies or the southern Rockies, uh, whether you're going to go through the southern basin or up through like Red Rock Desert, right. um, and finding really really different things there um, is one really broad. like the problem is like uh, I'm like interrupting myself now. That's always a good sign uh, that I. Th- Think I think ego warning. I think that Overland has enough replay built into itself that the reasons we don't have the same dependency on different starting conditions that other games have. Okay. Sure. Uh, I think the reason that those things are in there is to add more variety, and I think the basic yeah. setup for Overland has so much there's so much variance and there's so much emergence that we don't need these things as badly as other games okay so your theory, that might be patently false so your theory is that rollover is like a significant differentiator right like it's like, i think so like it has to be the thing that makes this game yeah and if we build it if we build the game right and the difficulty settings are right and we find ways to adjust people's expectations to like embrace rollover and and make it part of how they play then uh, 
the kinds of items that are in the game and the fact that you're constantly getting new people in your party and losing people from your party and the variety of encounters that you can get into. It's never, it's like, it's never just go into the place, fight the guys, move to the next thing. Like we don't have a normal murder loop advance loop or anything like that. Um, uh, that in practice, uh, playthroughs, uh, end up being very different in a way that they don't in a lot of games. Are you going to refresh new... Are are the calculations determined whether new party members are available independent of how many people died, or are they very dependent on how many people have died? Like, if if a character dies, does that make you more likely to find a new character? Right now, no. Everything is... There's almost no reactive generation in Overland. Hmm. Almost Hmm. everything is done ahead of time. Really? So you enter a new zone, and it generates out everything, and you, you can see rumors of where you'll be able to meet new people along the way and so on but okay. so the, the problem is though so even though i narcissistically think that our game is so good <laughs> that we don't need normal progression systems uh i still think that people are going to come into the experience with those expectations expectations from other games they're going right. to come in expecting like some kind of little prize at the end of their journey basically uh or um they, uh, I've overestimated, and actually they would love for the starting conditions of the game to be different uh, each time in a way that's more dramatic and more noticeable. Uh, or it's a way for us to signal quality, like, hey, we went the extra mile and we added this new tech tree thing. Um, right. And now there's more breadth and there's more value and we're signaling our commercial whatever. Like, there's, there's, there's like a dozen good reasons to put more stuff in. Um, and, uh, and I don't know exactly what we're going to end up doing for that, but... Um, uh, Hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting because um, it's important to make, especially for what you guys are doing, it's important to make death palatable, mm-hmm. right? That people are okay with characters dying, yeah. right? And that that certainly has been a problem that XCOM has, has dealt with, right? Obviously, we spent yeah, yeah, yeah. a long time talking <laughs> yeah. about that. Um, and like it's, some games have taken very different approach. Like Massive Chalice was an interesting approach to solve this mm-hmm. problem. And it's like, like the, you know, the game moves forward a decade at a time. Your characters yeah. are going to die. Like yes. if they don't die in combat, they're just going to die of old age, right? Yeah. And like, which you know, solve that problem pretty well, right? Like yeah. you know that you're only going to take these guys out three or four times, and it's in fiction. Like, yes, yeah. you know, it works out really, really well. Um, and so, you know, I almost feel like you guys are going to need something similar in that. You know, behind the scenes, the game is like trying to help. You know. You know, help you make sure that like if if you've gone you know, if you've lost too many party members you know like that's there's gonna be good stuff that happens to you and bad stuff but like the good stuff is probably more likely to be a new member if you guys are getting getting low like yeah so like I've done uh, uh, capsule has a, a ultra light AI that kind of monitors player status and right. tries to um, produce appropriately dramatic scenarios for you based on a a few resources that you have. And I think it was relatively effective and I think it doesn't work as well in Overland for a few reasons, but I actually think the thing that we have to worry about is almost backwards from that. Like I'm not as worried about making sure that 
there's a good thing for players when a bad thing happens. Like I just want them when a bad thing happens to just not give up. Right. Because normally like in this genre, if you lose a key party member, that might be game over. Right. And we've tried really, really hard to build this game so that that's not game over. That's right. a beat. Yeah. Like, Oh, we lost that dude. What a, that was a wild, unexpected twist. But our story is still going, yeah. and it can keep going without that guy. Right. And that is, I don't think those are expectations that are going to be widely held. Yeah. I, mean, I think there are expectations so you, that we have to adjust and set. So you within need a way to communicate somehow. the first few times people play that to like, please yeah. keep going, like don't give up. Yeah, until, and like, we've had a lot of it has been dumb things like we had our our placeholder text for um, at the end of each zone is what we call a roadblock, which is like. Uh, normally if you drive into overland level you can just drive back out you Mm. lost a little bit of fuel going there but if you don't want any part of the random environment you went into you can just leave and roadblocks are the only place where that's not true and they're extra dangerous you have to get out of the car and get the road clear and get your car through but uh, my placeholder text for those encounters was something like end of the road and you're trying to be all cool and comic Mm. booky about it or whatever and um, had a handful of players. Like, this is that, end, end of the road. Right. It's the last level. The road is blocked, uh-huh. so you can't take cars through this level. Yeah. The whole the whole premise is figure out how to take a car through the level. Right? <laughs> right. It's like, oh crap! <laughs> and it's just this placeholder text. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch. I know there's a bunch of little places like that where, um, uh. And we're like really close. Like we have we have like five thousand players or something right now, and a lot of people that play absolutely have exactly the kind of thing we're hoping they have. They treat it like a board game. They play it cooperatively. Uh, they have close calls. They abandon people. Like one of the one of the mechanics that I think sets this up and makes it work for some players at least is um, you. Uh, you have very limited party size based on which vehicle you're driving. Right. So there's no caravans or anything. And if you're driving a little hatchback car and you already have three people crammed in there, you can't pick up this fourth guy or this cute dog you just found. And yeah. so a lot of people, I think, start to... We onboard them to the idea of rollover by you know having them pull up and saying, you know, Eric, get out of the car. We just found a cute dog <laughs> and there's just not enough room, buddy. Right. Sorry. Uh, and off you go. So people understand that there's probably, an, to some extent, an excess of characters, right? Like, yeah. You know, at some points. Yeah, because... I mean, that's I, my ideal, is, like, throw a lot of people at the player and throw a lot of danger yeah. at the player and just, like, meat grind yeah. their party through this yeah. thing. It's tough, right? I mean, I talked about, like, helping the player out when they lose characters, but, like, you know, the... the 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 bad the, the downside of that is if you're not careful people it, that game is basically just making sure people make it through their first game fine right like you yeah know, as long as as long as there's still people I like, can keep going right so yeah if that may not that may not really well be and the an option, the learn right? through failure thing was miserable for us for a long time because people weren't learning through failure and the game and you fail constantly in the game and so none of it was working and uh, so we made the game easier. Mm-hmm. And then, but people still weren't learning from their failures, so they're making it even farther into the game before getting confused. Sure. And that was a disaster. And um, how did you up, fix that? Well, the thing we have now that is good enough for now, at least, is in most of the the first zone is a mini zone, so right. a normal normal zone. 
um, has about 20 locations. You can only go to 10 of them. They're little A, B choices. Sure. Um, but you don't have to go to all 10. You might go to only six on this trip or something. You might skip a few stops or whatever. And the first zone only has eight or 10 spots to choose from total. Trying to help people learn in their first few levels of the game is the first level, the first world, the first biome is really, really short. Uh, it's really cool looking. Uh, it's like, uh, it's the most like wrecked city environment that we have in the whole game is like uh-huh. right up front. Uh, so hopefully people feel like wherever they're at is especially interesting to look at, or it's a good first impression. The very, very first level of the game is the only non-random level. Okay. It's got like three very specific resources in specific places. And uh-huh. you, uh, there's a car with no gas. there's a can of fuel and there's like a heavy thing you have to push out of the way and there's a person you can say hi to and that's probably going to be split up into like at least two levels eventually but there's this little there's a little trap and you can't get out of it unless you do the three things you're going to have to do in this game a hundred times and so So it's like a little mechanical tutorial yeah, and there's no, it's all nonverbal or whatever, sure, but, but uh, it's all there. You, yeah, you have and it's, it's like the, it's like the dash run in Super Metroid or whatever. You're basically trapped in this area until you so figure you out how to play it. Overland. Yeah. But it's a cool looking area. Yeah. And you, it's a real level in a lot of ways. And then you go off into the little, um, what you call the kiddie pool, which is, um, the, this first zone of the game, not including the boss level, but all the normal levels. We just give the player a tremendous amount of leeway. There's no consequences for anything they do except running out of fuel. Mm-hmm. So there's maybe there might be one bad guy in the whole level, and there's a bunch of cool items you can pick up, and uh, you can find another car with almost no effort, and you find lots of gasoline lying all over the place, uh, and so it's just like everything's there for them, and uh, I, but. If they run out of gas, they go to Monster Zone, and everything's terrible, and they almost definitely get a game over. Yeah. So, that, like, we're only asking them to do that one thing right. in a lot of ways. Um, and we're, but the boss level, essentially, the little roadblock at the end, is also a relatively challenging level because part of what we want people to have in mind, uh, hopefully, hopefully they like an ideal first playthrough is they escape the first level. And they stop at a couple places and they go to that cool boss level and they get absolutely crushed. Mm-hmm. They get just absolutely wiped out and then they think about what they did in the other f- first couple of levels and go, oh, I should have stopped and picked up a shield there and I should have got that extra health kit. I shouldn't have crashed into that thing with the car so the car would still have full health and I should have gotten this thing and now I'm going to start over and I'm going to go prepare more. Because all I want people to take away is... You're supposed to prepare for roadblocks, and you're supposed to not run out of gas. And that's the only thing I want people to learn, because everything else they can learn later. Like, it turns out, in this particular game, everything else is secondary. Because they don't do... If they don't really... If they're not, like, fully indoctrinated to these other two things, nothing else in the game is interesting, and they won't care about anything else they're doing. If you don't care about preparing for the boss level, then you have no parameters or metrics for deciding what is a good strategic decision in terms of where to go next because where to go next is all about preparing for the boss level and if you don't have if you're not making any kind of strategic decision about where to go next then you don't care about what you're doing when you get there because you don't have a goal about what to do there and like the whole thing unravels yeah um so like the 
there's an, basically an entire world of the game where people really only need to pick up two ideas, hopefully. Right. Uh, which is asking a lot because there's no tutorial, there's n- no text telling them what to do. Uh, it's a UI that is not the same as most strategy game UIs. Uh, and uh, like, there's plenty of... The cognitive load is, I think, pretty high. And uh, and it's as high as people can handle. Sure. Uh, and I thought it'd be like, oh, you know, eight six eight and cannonball and every like like first level real deal. This right. is a real strategy game. There's no filler. You know, this is <laughs> deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's party time, and right. uh, you know, people are struggling, but that's because the UI is bad. But then we fix the UI, and people are still struggling a lot. And it's just, um, I. I just sat there and watched people not do experiments because they were scared. Yeah. They were like, I, I'm not going to go over there and find out what happens when I do that because my guy might die and I'm already surrounded by five monsters. And like they were, uh, you know, there was a certain kind of player who would do experiments right away. They didn't care that sure. they were surrounded by 20 monsters, but it was such a small subset of players. And we we're watching people who, when they would get over this hurdle, started having a lot of fun. Uh, and yeah, eventually we're just like, okay, you get four sandboxes yeah. where you can do whatever you want. Just don't run out of gas. I don't care what you do. Yeah. And then you're going to die at the boss level. And that's fine because you're just going to go play these three or four sandboxes again and actually pick up all the good stuff there. Cause now you know what it's for. Yeah. And now you can solve that boss level problem. And now you're going to go play real overland. Yeah. Well, people, I mean, people are going to relate to Overland much differently than 868 Hack because it just looks like a different type of game, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, this is, this is, you're on a big journey and, like, there's a bunch of fiction involved, whereas 868, you know, when, Hack and looks people like, get really, it looks crazy and it looks like you're going to spin through it a bunch of times and, right? Well, and you you don't have a squad. Yeah. That was a, a weird thing was, um, uh, Overland appears to be sort of secretly about taking care of people Mm -hmm. is the mindset you have as a player frequently and not I'm that guy. This is my group. Most games have trained you to play games that way. Yeah. Uh, But like Overland, the actual emotions that I think most players have or the main way they relate to the game is like, these are my little guys. Mm-hmm. I'm taking care of these two guys and they're taking care of this dog and I'm taking care of the dog by proxy mm-hmm. kind of, and they're a little group and I'm taking care of them and I'm trying to stop them from getting hurt or I don't like that guy and I want him to leave. Like it's a different way of, of connecting with the group, but um, I don't know. All those pieces, all those pieces so far are good and fit together and work. Right. Uh, all right. And well, let's. So let's it seems jump, promising. Let's jump out a little bit with Overland. Like, so why you've talked, of course, a little bit about you know how you wanted, um, you know, you wanted the the, the mini game to play out a little bit like you know eight six eight hack, right? Mm-hmm. And you wanted uh, XCOM, you know, you, an XCOM feeling, but like in a, you know, <laughs> you don't have time yeah. for these huge campaigns. But why? Why are you trying to make? Why? Why are you making Overland? Like. Um, you know, like, I mean, you can talk about that more. You yeah. can talk about some other stuff too. Well, right? part so part of it is like um, there's there's a thing that I'm preoccupied with for reasons that I don't I don't I don't know what the analysis or whatever or the why of it is. Like I like uh, 
small settings. I like settings where there's light touch fiction. Mm-hmm. I like settings where um, there's uh, a few people and they're basically alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like end of the world scenarios that are maybe a little non-traditional or a little off the beaten path. Like I haven't made a zombie game yet somehow, but a lot of the games we've made are essentially kind of stand-in mm-hmm. zombie scenarios. Yep. Uh, uh, and maybe part of that is like it's an excuse for there to be drama. Maybe part of it is just practical. Like there's a good reason there's only three people on screen at a time or whatever. Um, I don't know what the exact thing is, but like part of Overland it for sure was like, oh, it's another few people into the world story. Um, uh Probably the bigger or more complete or more accurate reason to actually make it is I just didn't know. I couldn't figure out how it was going to work. So there's just like, there's this period of making these crappy one button prototypes mm-hmm. and then kind of making a bigger puzzle game for a while and then having more failed prototypes. And uh, uh, I think the reason that we worked on that nine month project for as long as we did is I couldn't figure out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. And the reason I stopped working on everything else really quickly is I figure out how it works mm-hmm. and I'm just not interested in finishing it. Mm-hmm. I go, Oh, this piece goes here and this thing's here and this is how it works and cool. And now somebody just has to do a bunch of work on it to make it look nice or something. And I just like, I couldn't, uh, couldn't work on it. And f- like the very first, the very first overland, uh, it didn't have a name yet. It was just like a little pixel art sketch mm-hmm. that was very 868 hack inspired. It was just instead of neon hacker stuff, it was like little little guys and a little police car and like a yeah. little monster and a little crate or something. And um, I didn't know what... I knew roughly how it was going to work, but I didn't know exactly how it was going to work. Uh, I couldn't tell how much randomness it could sustain and wasn't sure what the best approach was for character abilities. Should they be classes? Uh, should they be more modular? Uh, how are monsters going to move? How are we going to handle difficulty? How long can this game even be? Uh, you know, what sorts of emergent systems are we going to end up having? What's that like? It, it just, it felt like it had an infinite number of questions and, also, like a lot of, if there's an imaginary checklist of features that your indie game on Steam should have, this had like a lot of them. It didn't have crafting, mm-hmm. but it could if it needed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not online, but most of the other things seem to be there. Mm-hmm. And so it, it seemed like if we did spend a bunch of time working on it, is not the worst thing that we could be working on. Right. Um, and if you stacked it up next to like the turn-based tower defense puzzle game thing, like uh, Overland, in a lot of ways, is a puzzle game. Right. A lot of the mechanics are designed very much as a uh, a, a boss battle in Overland is half of a Sudoku puzzle, basically, mm-hmm. and a couple of other elements. And a lot of the player mindset about min-maxing is very puzzly. Um, like a lot of strategy games are, especially turn-based strategy games. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just didn't know what it was going to... Uh, I know it was going to be, but everything, all the things that it could be seemed cool, and it seemed like if we if we worked on it for uh, a year, 
Yeah. It's currently three and a half. But <laughs> uh, if we worked on it for a year, that we would end up with a game that would have, um, it seemed a real safe, as safe a commercial bet as we'd ever sure come across in so our So if you're going to finally go for one of these projects that's going to yeah. have big scope, you're, yeah. you're trying to put yourself in a position where and, you can uh, at least sell it. Yeah, and we were trying to figure out what, what do we want to do, and we wanted to do a bigger project, yeah. and this seemed like, it was like, oh, I took XCOM in this mobile game I liked, and but as soon as we smashed them together, it started to feel like Pandemic almost right away. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's cool, because sure. I, I like that uh, kind of thing, the noose getting tighter and... Uh, uh, this weird, weird version of cooperative play, like a kind of co-op that isn't in the game industry very much, or the video game industry very much, of like a couple people sitting around making a plan together and then executing it together, and they don't have different controllers or whatever. Sure. Um, and Hundreds had a little teeny bit of that. So it's just like a bunch of little bits and pieces that we personally liked right. in a commercially safe package, but not a commercially boring, not a boring package by any means. Right, sure. Uh, and maybe it's just like it, probably the the the, sh- the shortest version of this is like almost everything in Overland is just a list of my favorite stuff in games, mm-hmm. and it happens to be organized in a way that isn't commercially terrifying. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots to be said for there is a game that you love, but there are a lot of things you'd like to change about it. So. Yeah, yeah. You want to push that, push forward with that, right? Yeah, and I think, like, uh, the first ray of hope or light or whatever was, like, it was a while. It was, like, 18 months or two years into this project, and it's still nowhere close to done. And um, somebody played it at a show somewhere, and their initial review of it is they were, like, it's, like, all the good... It's like all the good parts of an XCOM level, but it's only those parts. Oh, yeah, sure. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I think he's being uh, a little uh, hyperbolic, but it but was like, cool, you, that's where that's I want to be. To, yeah. yeah, I want all, just like all the juicy, just the, all the bits that matter the most. And I... Uh, and well, it's interesting the way to do that. You you have to change everything. Yeah, like, XCOM mean, could never do this. They can't yeah. skip the stuff. Yeah, I mean, that they're, I they're, skip. they're stuck. I mean, when I talked about like how they should get rid of permadeath, I mean, I think they, I think that like that may not be a choice they could possibly ever nope. make. Right? Like it's like saying you know, Civ would be a lot better if you cut off like yeah. half the history. Right? Someone was asking us, they're like, how, yeah, right, <laughs> right. It's not really an option for them. Well, um, so saying like, you know, how do you how do you get around this thing? And like, what happens in over? Like, it's always a bad thing in a procedurally generated game. Like, what happens when you go into a level and uh, it's just a bad seed, basically, uh-huh. and the players, you know, looking down the barrel of something they can't deal with, and you know that sucks for them. And it's like, yeah, but our everything about our design makes that fine to do, and actually we do that on purpose sometimes mm-hmm. because the you can just drive out of the level, yeah. and you learn to keep a few extra gallons in the tank in case you need to do in that. case there's a curveball. Yeah. No, that's that's I, that's a good good way to look at. It. I mean, I know definitely it's it's it, you talk about like the good parts of the uh, next comp level and like just the way the fact that there is no off screen territory. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's that's a great. I mean, I guess to, to you, you didn't even think about it because you just jumped straight from 
a six eight hack to that, but like it's it's interesting for from I, I thought of it more of like oh you're trying to do some interesting things with XCOM, but if you take that part of XCOM away, then you're forced to like get yeah. all the interesting parts in one place, right? Pretty much, um, and we for the long we actually we reintroduced Fog of War like six or nine months ago. Fog of War meaning there's that we have, there's tiles. That are off screen that you can't. They're see, not off screen, or that but there's, there's tiles are on screen that are black. Tiles that are on screen that are black. Okay, so that's, um, that's, yeah, we do like that's, every fourth level is a nighttime level, right? And okay. so there's like light sources. Okay. And you no, can that roll seems out the grid that and, still seems fine because it's still like yeah. this is the end of the possibility yeah. space. And part and of that, this is the it just yeah. has this condition. Part of that was like just a purely aesthetic thing. Like sure. it looks cool. It's like oh, it's a diamond, yeah. and that just looks cool. Part of it is isometric affords you a lot of clear views of the things that are in the tiles because they're less likely to overlap visually. Um, But a lot of it was this, um, you know, we have, we have some marketing budget, but compared to a normal strategy game, we don't have a marketing budget to speak of. We can go to a, we can go to a PAX once in a while. Uh, So we thought that um, it would be good for marketing and good for players since we're being, uppity indies and we don't want tutorials in our game or whatever if the the quote-unquote legibility of uh, in-game scenario was very very high um and so we wanted to part of the having it be mostly in mundane real world settings for most of the game and for having very very visual we have there's no hidden inventory right. uh and there's a bunch of other things um and most of the threats we try to make um very very uh, telegraph visually uh, with very little effort on the part of the player. Part of that was just so that the screenshots would look super cool. Sure. So like you could um, uh, into the breach, the new uh, yeah. subset game. Mm-hmm. Their announced their original announcement wasn't even a trailer; it was a single screenshot. Sure. And the legibility of the screenshot is off the charts. It's right. so good. Like you can see, you can look at their little strategy game diorama thing, and you can see. Uh, a whole story. You're like, oh, here comes the aliens and the robots are defending the city and they're going to punch those aliens in the face. That guy's probably a robot pilot. That's some kind of... Re- I don't know what those are, but they look cool. And like you can you can piece together the whole operation there. Uh, and uh, that's something that we tried to really actively do really, really early. Right. Um, and that's a lot of that is our art. Uh, the Overland art director is a woman named Heather Penn, and uh, a few. It was pretty early on in the project, but she did this piece of key art that uh, it was just like a little diorama with a stone arch, and it was like a little truck and a little guy and a little guy mm-hmm. sitting by a campfire and like a dog with weird stuff on it or something. Um, and it was just we were just trying to find a mood or trying to like find something and we were like that's cool let's try some other things and we did a bunch of experiments for six more months and we came like right back to that key art and we were like we're doing that everything's gonna look just like that as much as possible uh and i think it was um i think heather had found that thing (laughs) that was one of many things that she found in that particular thing that particular format that that diorama where you can see everything and it's all there's like one human scale human object per tile and you can start to extract this one piece of care you see like oh that guy showed up in that truck and he's going to try to go talk to that guy but i don't think you can see the weird dog behind the rock over there um like uh 
really wanted that. So all of the overland hazards of like there's wildfires and these big chunky creatures that take up a whole tile and are covered with spikes and like uh, all of those things are trying to make it so that you can see the just like you can in pandemic like if you play pandemic once you can see any photo of any pandemic game board and go right. oh crap mumbai's in big trouble right. and like you've got to break out over here but if like which hang on which classes do you have like you want to just like start uh like the pandemic game board as a screenshot i feel like is a really really great sure. screenshot in yeah, a lot yeah, of ways yeah. um and i think uh if you're a small studio and you have no money, you could do worse than to make sure that anybody pressing print screen at any point in your game ends up with something that is kind of brain playable yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, so let's jump back to like kind of one sort of like final question, which is, um, you know, talk about why you want to make Overland. Why have you wanted to make games? Like, why have you, is that what you've devoted your career to? Hmm. So, going back and forth on this a little bit, like, I, so there used to be a lot of, like, psychological, like, justifying, like, you know, uh, or, you know, I've always been into mixed media stuff mm -hmm. and studied film when I was at college and loved comic books for my whole life. And something about mixed media is just completely intoxicating and, uh, and I really, really like it. And something about computers is always has all like, since I was two has just been, uh, irrationally intoxicating. Like I, I want to be around it. Like the notion that you type words into a thing and then a bunch of things move around is pretty weird and cool. Right. Uh, but, um, and for a while there's some, just some like practical things. Like I got into making indie games when it was the easiest possible time to get into making indie games in a lot of ways. Right. Um, you just make a flash game in a week and yeah. like 3 million people will play it. Uh, and so, you know, practical fallback. I've, I'm, I can program computers if I have to, right. so I can get a health insurance if I have to. Right. Uh, cause I got to, my parents were able to send me to a good school or whatever. Um, there's a bunch of like little bits and pieces there, but, um, there's a good, I read a good little book recently, which I think was published posthumously, but it's a collection of advice from the novelist, John Gardner, um, and that he used to use in his classes when he was talking to new writers. And it wasn't advice about writing. It was advice about being a writer, okay. which is like a slightly different set of things. Uh, and a lot of the book is kind of, kind of funny or kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, and a lot of it's a little bit serious and he's like a, like chain smoking. He's like a chain smoking fifties typewriter pounding, like yeah. novelist man, 17 hour typing days or whatever. Uh, so like you have to take some of it with a grain of salt, but at some point he says something in there that all of it rings true for me in a lot of ways. Uh -huh. Like it's, is it was like weird to read it. Uh, but there's one little piece where he says something like he's going through all the qualities that he imagined that he recognizes in people who are likely to sustain 
the work of being a novelist, uh-huh. which is to work on something that everybody thinks sucks for like two years at least. Uh-huh. And then hopefully it turns out good. And then you put it out and nobody buys it. And then you start working on the next one. <laughs> and like, what are the qualities that those people have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they tend to be stubborn and a little, uh, uh, kind of standoffish and observant and a bunch of things. He goes down this thing. And then at the end of the chapter, he basically, he goes at the same time, some of the best writers I know are like just somebody's mom somewhere. It's like these, uh, like I see these things in my students, but like this is, these are trends and this is, this is not what defines a writer. And he's, and then he says, honestly, the only thing that I've been able to, really keep track of is they're the only people who are novelists are people for whom it is easier to write than to not write. Uh, right. Which is kind of just a fancy fun turn of phrase, but like yeah. that, I think com- that's probably the closest thing. Like, I don't know. There's no, if I'm on a no computers break, I start making games with dice. <laughs> you know, if like, it says, uh, you don't know why, but you can't stop yourself. Basically. Yeah, it's like I like um, uh, <coughs> if there's any one thing at, at this point, it's probably um, like emergence, like discovering things, like having five simple rules and suddenly an unexpected sixth new rule pops out of it mm. kind of on its own. Um, and that like little like that little rush from finding, finding an unknown thing, a thing you didn't plan for and, but it's there and your little three or four rules helped you find it kind of mm-hmm. like that. Um, that process of discovering things, um, is, that's probably as close as it comes mm-hmm. to a reason to do this. Like the reason I, the reason I work at it and we have a company is it's just kind of, it's, it's satisfying. I like we publish games too and like that's a different kind of work and it's I like seeing people who are making good stuff and they can get it 99% of the way there and you can step in and do the last 1% or whatever or more sometimes Uh, and uh, just feels really good feels cool but it's not the um, not the same thing as making making the thing up from scratch and finding these three or four little three or four little special things that are like at the root of it and that everything grows out of it. Right, right. Um, that's hurt. It, I think it's relatively special with games. There's right. not a lot of other things Let's like yeah. there's a lot of the, um, talk I've friends who write, comics they do graphic novels or work in the film industry and there's there's so many through lines there's so many things that are similar there's the you've got 10 ideas and you're suspicious that they're somehow related but you don't really know how and they just have to sit in the back of your head for three months mm-hmm. and then suddenly one morning you'll wake up and go it's these four pieces they all fit together perfectly mm-hmm. and now you've got a thing uh, and then you have to work on that thing you have to do a hundred drafts and the hundred first draft finally you realize that it's all, it's all so simple. I just had to do this. And there's like, there's three lines in like so many creative fields, uh, to this exact process. Like anybody who makes stuff has this process at some point, it's always there. Um, but 
there, I don't think there are as many fields that have a specific shape of uh, discovering, like this process of discovery, I guess. Right. And I, I like I've seen I've seen painters talk about it. Maybe like if you're like a minimalist musician and you're creating right. kind of rules, you have rules driven music. Sure. But at that point, I'd almost say, um, I mean, that's basically game design at that point. Then, mm-hmm. like if you're doing you're doing rules based stuff, um, I, I guess for painters, it's more like you're doing a thing and you screwed up and the shape is all wrong, but now you realize you like it. Oh right. yeah. That spot. That's the, that thing's actually really cool. That's great. I want that. And now I'm going to rebuild the rest of it around that. Um, and I don't know. That's, uh, it feels like that's all making games is. Sure. Yeah. It's a hundred percent that there's no, there's, it's just, I mean, shipping games, there's a lot of things that aren't that. Right. Yeah. But yeah like, for sure. But finding the core, the part that works. Yeah, there's it's all it's all discovery, it's all accidents, it's all poking around in the dark and digging holes and seeing if there's anything interesting at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then on the other end, what gets this like joyful weird process of discovery on my end, which I like, then eventually produces something that maybe gives someone a lot of joy or excitement or comfort or distraction at a time when they really, really need it. Uh, or maybe there's a little thing in it. Like, uh, it always feel, this feels like very, very self-congratulatory or something, but the idea that someone might be playing a strategy game Mm -hmm. and might soak up a long-term versus short-term uh, priority thing, right? You know, they might be playing a cool strategy game and have a thing where they were tempted to do something uh, in the short term that would be really harmful in the long term, yeah. and kind of, uh, you know, started doing the math on it, right. and you know, did it or or did the did the dumb thing, and saw what happened, failed in a really safe way, yeah. rolled it back, played it out a different way, like maybe that. Um, uh, strategy games seem really particularly well suited to people uh, soaking up a little bit of systemic thinking. Yeah. Not that that's the only way to parse the world or whatever, but like, uh, yeah, it's sure. a good tool. Yeah. It's a well, nice tool. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I think we're. Already in the drink time. So. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. This was excellent. Um, and I definitely have two podcasts worth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, see, that's... <laughs> I knew there was a... getting you to talk without being <laughs> super difficult. Super difficult.